Okay. We we need to see who we who we have. Do we have everybody? Good morning. Kirsten, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Okay. Okay. Uh, we'll call this meeting to the for the Board of Wildlife Commissioners on this Saturday, March 20th to order. Um, let's see, how about we have Commissioner Perini lead us in the pledge? Okay, thank you. Mm -hmm. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the Republic for which it stands one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Thank you. My apologies, I kind of jumped into that fast. <laughs> uh, let's see. Missy, can you please uh, do the roll call? Absolutely. Chairwoman East? Here. Vice Chair Barnes? Here. Commissioner Ombeck? He mentioned he may not be able to join us again today, so um, uh, we'll we'll have him absent excused for for now, and he may join us later. Uh, Commissioner Kabilia, here. Commissioner Hubs, here. Commissioner Keel, here. Commissioner McNinch, here. Commissioner Perini, here. Commissioner Rogers, here. Thank you, Missy. Um, and could the board of um, the cap, the, I'm sorry, let me start over, the county advisory board members to manage wildlife. Can you let us know that you're here by raising your hand in the, so we can, so we have Paul Dixon. I guess I'll just announce them. Paul Dixon, Jim Cooney, Joe Crawford, Glenn Bunch, Mr. McElvain, and Joe Krim. One, two, three, four, five, six. about six of them. Great, thank you. Okay, agenda item number two, approval of the agenda Chairwoman East for possible action. The commission will review the agenda and may take action to approve the agenda. The commission may remove items from the agenda, continue items for consideration, or take items out of order. Do we have any changes to the agenda? Any discussion about the agenda? Okay, seeing none, it is an action item, so we'll take it out for public comment. Any public comment on our agenda for Saturday, March 20th? Got a couple of folks. Jana Hoffaditz. Hoff Can you hear me? Yes. Hi. Hi. Were you trying to speak to us yesterday? No. Okay. That was a different <laughs> Jana. Okay. Thank you. Go ahead. Hi. My, I, I'm not sure if I'm supposed to speak yet on this issue because I don't know what the lineup is per se. My issue I'm speaking on would be about the um, wildlife killing contests. 
Okay, no, you'll you what you'll do is you'll speak to us when we get to that item. We're I right had now. a feeling. I'm sorry. You just kind of it was a broad question, so I wasn't sure if I was supposed to chime in. I'm sorry. No worries. Thank you. I will I will mute you. <laughs> just mute. Just mute you. <laughs> I meant mute. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Uh, okay. Any other public comment on our agenda for today? I don't see any. Okay. Uh, so I'll bring it back to the commission for approval of today's agenda. Do I have a motion to approve the agenda? Okay, I have a motion by Commissioner Cavilia. Do I have a second? By Commissioner Rogers to approve today's agenda. All in favor of, please raise your hand. And opposed. <laughs> and Mr. Barnes got in on that one. <laughs> motion carries eight to zero with Commissioner Alberg absent. And um, please, uh, note that Gene Green from Carson City is on. He's um, he just shot shot me a note. Um, okay, agenda item number thirteen: member items, announcements, and correspondence. Chairwoman East, informational. Commissioners may present emergent items. No action may be taken by the commission. Any item requiring commission action may be scheduled on a future commission agenda. The commission will review and may discuss correspondence sent or received by the commission since the last regular meeting and may provide copies for the exhibit file. Commissioners may provide hard copies of their correspondence for the written record. Correspondence sent or received by Secretary Wasley may also be discussed. We had a lot, a lot of correspondence even since yesterday about today's agenda. Um, so I forward, forwarded my um, correspondence to Missy so that you can all get copies of it. So I'm sure that you're receiving those as well. So if you have any that you don't feel the commission's been copied on, please send them to Missy. Any other correspondence, Secretary Wasley? Uh, thank you, Madam Chair. I just wanna make a point of clarification. It was mentioned uh, yesterday in public comment that the department spoke to the volume of comments uh, mostly pertaining to the hounding issue yesterday with approximately 2,200 emails uh, and the coyote contest of today with approximately 600 emails. And it was suggested in public comment that, that my comments relative to the fact that uh, overwhelming majority of those 2,200 uh, emails pertaining to hounding fell into one of two form letters was to cast doubt on their veracity or contents. And, and I just wanted the record to show that it was actually 180 degree opposite of that intent. It was to provide certainty to not only those commenting uh, that the commission would have adequate capacity to review them because of the fact that so many were repeats, it would not hinder the commission's ability for their comments to be heard. And I just wanted to let the record reflect that. Okay, thank you very much. Commissioner Hubs. Yes, good morning. Um, can you all hear me through this microphone? I just wanna make sure. Yes. Okay, great. I have a little microphone down here now. Um, just in regard to what uh, Director Wasley was saying or Secretary Wasley, I think um, 
I think it's important to note when we do talk about those types of comments that come in, uh, that's about organization, I think, on the ground, right? I mean, we're seeing individuals who may be lay people, may be very busy, but have an interest, right, in our wildlife and a stance on that. And um, so we have organizers, we all know that on the ground that are telling folks about these issues. And um, I don't, I just want to say too, that I don't lend any less credence to something that's coming in, in a, in a, in a form letter, because a lot of folks want to make their voice heard, but they're, um, they don't know how to do so. They want it to be sincere. And, you know, organizers on the ground may say, these are the issues at stake. This is what's going on. And, um, we have a letter that speaks to that if you want to use it, but we certainly collectively could hear your voice, you know? So I don't, I, I think it's important, yeah, to stress that, because uh, I've heard that too a couple of times, and I don't think Secretary Wasley meant it in that manner by any means. I, I know him fairly well. I know he, he takes things very seriously, whatever side it may fall on, but um. Yeah, some people will use a form letter and that's so that's okay. We all use different resources, right? When we try to talk about where we stand on issues and um, form letter or not, uh, I, I feel like the commission uh, members most likely, and I hope this is the case, give credence to everyone who takes the time to send in something. It means they it, it's valuable to them. Enough so that they stop in the middle of the day to send something to their state and ask the state to do something. So I hope people out in the public can uh, rest assured that we take every correspondence test seriously. It can be a lot at times, but they're all read and we see where you stand. And we don't, I, at least I don't personally take any less credence with one that may seem to already have appeared a couple times because I understand that that may have been provided to them as a basis for their stance on the position. So I think it's important to just say that and um, wanted to support the department's uh, and, and Secretary Wesley's uh, perspective on that. That is how they come in. We do read them and it's, it's nothing negative. It's nothing. I see it on both sides of the issue too. So it's not one side or the other. Same, same issues, same points. And it's almost just, I keep a running toll. I mean, I do, I try to watch where people are and where they're coming in. I do uh, watch out of state comments versus in-state comments. I think those are important, but I don't discount out of state comments. I mean, Here's somebody from an, a different state that feels so strong about an issue that they're taking the time to remark about it in a national perspective in another state. I look at it in that way. So I, I think there is no manner in which, in which your comment becomes any less important uh, when you send it in. So I just want people to feel rest assured about that matter. Okay, thank you, Commissioner Hubs. Commissioner McNinch, did you have something to add? Uh, very briefly, I just wanted, as a commissioner, my perspective was that the uh, the department went to great lengths to simplify what we were receiving so that we really could process it. And uh, I mentioned yesterday how much I appreciated it. I'll say it again this morning. 
Um, they really did make it um, as, as easy as possible to see everything that was coming in. So uh, um, they, they, in my perspective, they went to great, they went to lengths more than, than was really reasonable. So they, they went out of their way. So I appreciate it. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, <clears throat> when I heard the numbers <laughs> coming across, I was, I was surprised, but I think it's important that we, we let our public know how much uh, correspondence we received on that issue because it was it was a very um, important issue for a lot of people. So I appreciate all of the comments. Vice Chair Barnes. Thank you, Madam Chairman. I just want to uh, make a comment kind of towards the, uh, the letter we received from the Humboldt uh, County Cab yesterday, but uh, let the cabs that are present today know how much I appreciated them being here and, uh, and how much I enjoy hearing their comment. And I really encourage um, the cabs to present their comments um, to us on certain issues. You know, we see their we see their reports, um, but it, but when you get get in the middle of a discussion, sometimes it's hard to go back and, and refresh and remember what each cab um, did. And so when you get in these discussions, I really appreciate um, hearing hearing the cabs. And, and if they want they want their voice to be heard. Um, least for me, it, it really helps when, when, they're, when they're present. And I know it's not always convenient. Um, this format has kind of created its own set of challenges, but, but even when we, uh, when we meet live, it's, it's really important, I think, that we have the cabs present. And, and when, they, when they do give their comments, uh, maybe expand a little bit more on whether you supported or opposed. Um, I, I'd like to hear a little bit more about you know, the reasons why and, and a little bit of the discussion. They don't need to go on for a long time, but, but all that helps me in making my decision. Thank you, Vice Chair Barnes. And I need to remind the public um, that if you've got a comment, if, because we've turned the chat box off, if you can't um, get through to us through the Zoom, raising your hand, would you please email um, the Wildlife Commission at endow.org. Missy's watching that email. And um, if there's something that needs to be shared, she'll let us know. Uh, please don't text me or email me personally because I'm not going to be checking those throughout the meeting. Okay, um, moving on. Any other correspondence? Yes, Commissioner Hubs. I, I just want to clarify why the, the department on record um, turns off the chat box. I think that's going to help folks understand like you know, I just want to be transparent here, what's going on, especially when we're working in this manner, um, why the chat box is turned off, because obviously the chat box is the way that we all see the comment, right? So I just want to, to have a chance for the department to tell everybody why, why or why not we would turn off a chat box for a hearing, of, you know, a public hearing, and so everyone can feel comfortable about that. My, my understanding is, and Secretary Wosley can, um, can speak to this as well, but the chat box is not a form of public record. We don't read the messages in the chat box into the record. We only see the chat box, the people that are on. So my understanding is that, but maybe Secretary Wosley can, can speak to it. Uh, thank you, Madam Chair. I think you're <clears throat> spot on. That is the primary <laughs> reason, but I, there's also some additional reasons that um, it, it can provide a distraction to the commission as those comments are filtering in. Uh, it can also you know, provide 
an opportunity for some unnecessary or unwanted banter mid conversation on topics and issues. Uh, it isn't a formal means of collecting public input um, and in an effort to minimize distraction and standardize the means by which people provide their public comment. Um, you know, we're trying to, to also keep individuals to equal amounts of time and equal opportunities. And so, um, you know, I think that standardizes it and keeps everybody uh, equal in terms of their opportunity. But I, I would also invite some comment from Dag Burkett. Go ahead, yes. Thank you. I, I, I wanted to just real quickly, I apologize for interrupting the meeting, um, but I just wanted to real quickly say that I, I completely support that idea because I, I was watching what was going on yesterday. I'm a little concerned that some people are getting unfair access to the commission. And we set up this system now where we have a three minute opportunity to make avail yourself of the commission. And then I noticed that individuals are then commenting beyond that. And I think the other issue, of course, is just uh, the commission members' um, attention span. <laughs> I worry a little bit about that. I wanna make sure everybody has a fair opportunity to access the commission. And I worry a little bit about, okay, if they send 15 more chats, are they then getting extra access to the commission members' time? So I, I really do support that move. And I also wanna say, the department is doing a great job. I'm so impressed with how flawlessly yesterday went with the three minute time frame and the timing. So uh, I wanna compliment um, Missy or whoever's doing it over there at the department, you're doing a great job. So thank you very much. It really makes my job easier. Thank you, Dag Burkett. Okay, any other member items or announcements? Okay, seeing none, we'll move on to agenda item number 14, County Advisory Boards to Manage Wildlife, member items informational. CAB members may present emergent items at wildlifecommission at endow.org. These comments will be shared with the commission. No action may be taken by the commission. Any item requiring commission action will be scheduled on a future commission agenda. Okay, do we have any uh, CAB? members who wish to make comment. I'm not seeing anybody raise their hand, so we'll move on to agenda item number 15, reports informational. 15A Department Activity, Activity Report, Secretary Wasley and Division Administrators. A report will be provided on the Nevada Department of Wildlife Activities. Secretary Wasley. Thank you, Madam Chair. And um, we are going to uh, continue with the format that we um, adopted at the last commission meeting where each division administrator will provide uh, the overview from his or her division, but I'll provide just a really brief overview from the director's office. Um, <clears throat> the director's office has been busy preparing for the current legislative session. Um, director's office staff have uh, met with multiple legislators, including chairs of the Natural Resource Committees, uh, Assemblyman Howard Watts and Senator Fabian Donate. Um, I provided a department overview presentation to the Assembly Committee on Natural Resources on February 3rd, 
and the department had a budget presentation scheduled for the Joint Committee on Public Safety and Natural Resources on trans and, and transportation on March 9th. Uh, due to uh, limited time, uh, that was postponed in, indefinitely. Uh, many staff have been uh, busy reviewing bill language, preparing testimony for multiple bills related to wildlife and law enforcement this session. And Deputy Director Bonnie Long and Administrative Services Officer 3, uh, Jordan Goshert, have been busy buttoning up uh, budgetary items, preparing fiscal notes, um, and answering many questions coming from, from the governor's office and, and the governor's finance office. Um, director's office also continues to work on the submittal of multiple petitions, lawsuits, audits, and public records requests. Um, so that, that concludes the report from the director's office, and uh, we will um, now move to the game division and game division administrator, Mike Scott. Thank you, Director Wasley. Um, I am learning that I need to be much more brief in these, um, but uh, thank you for the opportunity. Uh, Smith Valley mule deer disease investigation. Uh, game division staff have been working on a potential disease outbreak in Smith Valley. At least six mule deer have been reported to have died with three being submitted for necropsy. One of these was darted and the decision was made to euthanize. Uh, initial results from Waddle, which uh, the Washington Animal Disease Diagnostic Lab indicate a possible infectious etiology, most likely viral. Uh, histopathology is most consistent with malignant catarrhal fever. However, initial tests were negative, possibly due to serotype. We are working closely with Waddle to do additional testing and encourage area biologists to continue reporting deaths. Uh, bat handling permits, um, due to dropping COVID-19 rates, wildlife health staff have been working with diversity to create a tiered approach based on COVID-19 caseloads to allow some handling of bats and allow permittees to resume work. A kickoff meeting uh, was held between Endow and federal agency partners to initiate the creation of what will be Nevada's White Nose Syndrome Response Plan. Big game quota recommendations. Game division staff are preparing for the annual quota recommendation process. This process begins with big game surveys and data analysis. Population model includes harvest report analysis, updating demand success formulas and quota arrays, providing quota recommendations, writing, editing status and trend reports, which are ultimately consolidated into the annual Big Game Status and Trend book. During this process, the Conservation Education Division writes two books, the Nevada Big Game Seasons and Applications and the Nevada Big Game Hunting Guide. Big Game Seasons are also set during this process during the January Wildlife Commission meeting. This process ultimately concludes with a delightful day of discussion where quotas are adopted by the commission. Sorry about the, sorry about that. Elk, mule deer, and sage-grouse surveys. Game division personnel have concluded elk surveys and have begun spring mule deer surveys. Once mule deer surveys are completed, staff will be conducting sage-grouse surveys from both air and ground. Tonopah game biologist. Hunter Burkett officially began as the Tonopah game biologist on February 22nd. Hunter has worked for the Nevada Department of Wildlife for several years, including sage-grouse selects, counting sage-grouse selects, and most recently worked as a wildlife tech in, in Elko. Uh, we appreciate Hunter uh, taking that position. It's an important position for us, and I'm glad to see him move into that position. Uh, 
big game captures. Uh, 14 bighorns were captured and translocated from the Black Rock Range to the Lake Range in cooperation with the Pyramid Lake Paiute Tribe over two days. There were two mortalities, one due to a broken neck and one a presumptive combination of capture myopathy and a hip dislocation. Results are pending on the second one. A total of 20 sheep was translocated from the Sheep Creek Range to McGee Mountain. Captures went better than expected with no mortalities and no IV placed. Uh, possibly a result of the use of midazolam to calm the sheep on the mountain. 15 sheep were captured in the snowstorm mountains for disease sampling with two mortalities, one from a broken neck and second one succumbed to a fall from a cliff. Uh, one of the mortalities had a slightly thickened sinus lining, which will be submitted for sinus tumor testing. Three moose were captured with game division staff assisting these captures went smoothly with drug induction times better than expected. Base camp captures were conducted in the Bloody Run Hills, the Santa Rosas, and Tobin Ranges. <clears throat> Several animals with very high temperatures were brought in from the Bloody Runs. Eight animals were captured with six brought into base camp. One came in with a temperature of 109 and died the next day. Two other rams had temperatures over 108. The area game biologists will be monitoring color activity closely. A necropsy was suggestive that the cause of death was capture myopathy and hyperthermia. Due to the potential for added mortalities, we decided we directed the capture crew to work up all of the Santa Rosa capture animals on the mountain. One additional mortality was an older ram whose death was attributable to limited lung capacity due to pneumonia. Three ewes that had moved to the slumbering hills from the 2019 release were captured and translocated back to the bloody runs. The capture crew was unable to locate the lone ram in the slumbering hills. Three ewes were caught and collared in the Tobin range. One of the three had lung sounds consistent with previous or chronic pneumonia. Two of the three were pregnant. The capture crew was unable to locate any older age rams, so no rams were captured. <coughs> this capture effort went very well and the desert sheep appeared less stressed than the California sheep. These sheep were also administered midazolam on the mountain. The capture crew reported observing approximately 30 ewes while conducting captures. Seven GPS collars were deployed on pronghorn in management area one to assess seasonal habitat delineation and interstate migration. A wild turkey webinar. Game division staff participated in a webinar with the Conservation Education Division and the Wild Turkey Federation for wild turkey hunting in February. Development of Upland Game Forecasting Tool. Game Division staff completed an interlocal agreement with the University of Maine to develop our Upland Game Forecasting Tool that will incorporate population and harvest data along with environmental variables to determine correlation and make predictions. Sage Grouse Disturbance, prevent, disturbance Prevention. Game Division staff provided input to Nevada Department of Transportation on their US Highway 93 widening project and the use of a materials pit that was very near to active sage grouse lecks near Knoll Mountain. Nevada Department of Transportation has agreed not to use that particular material site. Oregon wolf. A collared male wolf from Oregon has made its way south in recent weeks. Its location was displayed near Verdi in mid to late February. Then it moved around the west side of Lake Tahoe and continued south. Recently, it has been moving back and forth across the Nevada California state line near Topaz Lake. 
We will continue to monitor this animal through updates received from Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife. A quick update on that is that um, my understanding is that wolf has moved down near Yosemite, so it's not currently in Nevada. Um, lastly, bobcat sealing. Nevada uh, Game Division personnel sealed a total of 875 bobcats in uh, 2021. This is the second lowest all-time total, with only 1995-96 being lower, with a total of 806 bobcats sealed. Low demand is the primary reason for this year's take. Because of COVID-19 and various border clo closures, primarily in Canada, last year's North American harvest went largely unpurchased. This means there's a glut in the market and buyers were very cautious, cautiously adding to their already large inventory, which resulted in driving prices lower. That's it from the game division. Thanks, Mike. I think next, next up, uh, we'll hear from the Habitat Division. Good morning, Alan Janay, Habitat Division Administrator. Um, I'm, for whatever reason, my file just dropped. There we go. Um, so this morning, I'd like to tell you about Carson Lake and Pasture Transfer. The transfer of Carson Lake and Pasture from the U.S. Bureau of Reclamation and BLM to the state of Nevada is soon to be finalized. The transfer was initiated by federal legislation has been in, and has been in works for over 30 years. The department will be coming forward at future commission meetings to amend commission policy to officially add and designate the approximately 23,000 acres that make up Carson Lake and Pasture as an official Endow Wildlife Management Area. Fire rehabilitation season. The fire rehabilitation season is wrapping up with Endow crews completing a sagebrush seedling planting on approximately 185 acres on Spruce Mountain, south of Wells. This restoration season, Endow has conducted 62,200 acres of restoration activities with 33,304 acres of aerial seeding, 1,629 acres of drill seeding, 27,187 acres of herbicide application, and 16,185 acres of seedling plantings. This brings Endow's wildfire restoration total to 422,240 acres since 2016. The success was due to a broad coalition of over 15 partnering entities that helped generate over $8 million of support over the last five years. This incredible milestone would have never been possible without the continued collective support of the dedicated sportsmen, NGOs, non-governmental organizations, private landowners, industry partners, Board of Wildlife Commissioners, federal and state agencies. Nevada's water. Southern Nevada, uh, Southern Nevada's record-setting lack of precipitation observed in 2020 seems to be continuing into 2021. Recent aerial surveys show that water levels on big game guzzlers remain low and will likely require further emergency intervention. Throughout the 2020 and now responded with emergency water hauls and at an unprecedented scale with helicopters, four-wheel drive trucks, and water tenders. In total, approximately 167,000 gallons of supplemental water was provided to over 30 guzzlers. Without supplemental water, a high proportion of bighorn sheep in certain mountain ranges would have likely died from dehydration. 
technical review. The technical review program has been devoting staff to the presidential and uh, Department of Interior Secretarial orders issued in January, as many of these orders will influence endow comment into the proposed federal land projects. The major actions we are working to better understand moving forward are a pause on oil and gas lease sales, the review of the greater sage grouse land use plans, changes affecting the Endangered Species Act, specifically definitions to habitat, the DOI solicitor opinion on take under the Migratory Bird Treaty Act and implications to the implementation of the Council on Environmental Quality National Environmental Policy Act regulations. Make sure I never put that in another paragraph. Um, sagebrush ecosystem team. The sagebrush ecosystem team and Endow's representative have has recently completed its conservation credit system, certified verified training for the upcoming spring summer 2021 field season, private landowners conserving and enhancing sage grouse habitat and developers proposing anthropogenic disturbances in sage grouse habitat are preparing to collect field data this summer to analyze the habitat functionality of their credit or debit project. The next Sagebrush Ecosystem Council meeting is scheduled for March 30. And with that, that wraps up the habitat update. And if there are no questions, I'll pass it over to Chris Vasey for conservation education. Oop, I see a question. Somebody have a question for Mr. Janay? Oh, Commissioner McNich. Thank you, Madam Chair. Well, on the transfer of Carson, uh, Carson Lake, uh, so is public hunting allowed on that now, On out in the pasture, out in the, okay. Yes, there is. So how, how will that, will any of that change with the transition um, to a wildlife management area or does it remain essentially the same? It will still remain open and huntable um, when we take possession into the hunting season. It'll run under the general, general Western region uh, waterfowl regulations. Yeah, okay. And I was kind of approaching that from the standpoint of I didn't know how much use it had, would it go up? Um, it doesn't sound like that's the case because I do know that it's a, from a, a, a wildlife viewing standpoint, um, there's a substantial amount of other activity that occurs out there. And I didn't know if uh, we would have some of the same challenges um, balancing that that we've had uh, at Overton, even though I, I really not heard any complaints at Overton. I just was wondering what that dynamic, if that dynamic would change because it works well now. So. Yeah, thank you for the question. One of the things also as we take over the property, as with all of our management areas, we will be going into a public input process to develop a comprehensive resource management plan for the property. Um, so probably in the next two years, we'll be going through that effort. And that'll be to, you know, think about uh, things like that as and learn for, as we manage it, learn what the use is, and then try to predict and make sure that we're managing it, you know, most efficiently and effectively for, you know, the wildlife and the users. Yeah, I appreciate that. And for the record, I think this is a good point, to, a good time to point out that I, I'm particular, I'm talking particularly about the, the um, bird watchers. And um, I really, I, there's probably some exceptions to this, but largely the people that I talk to, um, when they go out and how they go out and you know, time of day, time of year, whatever, um, they blend it in with other uses. It's not an issue for them. Uh, I just want that. I want that. It's, this isn't a competition. People, 
people get it. And um, I think it's important to note that, that it's, um, I think that you got, you have good balance at these places and um, there might be a disappointment here and there, but for the most part, the people I talk to, you know, you can't go out to this place on a certain day because there's hunting and uh, that's all there is to it. It's just the way it is. So I just throw, thought I'd throw that out. Thank you. Thank you. Any other questions for Mr. Janae? Mr. Hubs. Yes, Mr. Janae, I just have a question about the group that you called out, the Sagebrush Ecosystem something something. I, I'm not sure what you stated, but I find that interesting. I, I'm just going to be honest as to why. I, you know, we've talked about the sage grouse numbers. I know that came up a couple commission meetings ago and, um, you know, they weren't doing too well. And I'm interested in knowing more about what's being done for that habitat uh, to especially kind of to help those populations. And um, is that a group that's working on that matter? Yeah, so the Sagebrush Ecosystem Council was created by uh, Governor Sandoval. It was to deal with the Sagebrush Ecosystem. Um, there was a Sagebrush Ecosystem technical team that was established. Um, I believe there are five team members and now has an employee, a representative on that team uh, that primarily it's to deal with uh, anthropogenic impacts to sage grouse and to mitigate those impacts. Um, there's a lot of science behind it. And so they've developed a system as a mitigation banking tool to uh, evaluate debits that are generated by anthropogenic projects and sagebrush habitats, and then create a system by which uh, credits can be purchased. Um, and so it's, it's something that's working. And I, I think if it would be of interest to you, I could absolutely uh, schedule a time where we could bring in Katie Anderley, our technical team representative, and uh, give you a little bit of update on that. But I think um, also Sean Espinoza um, delegating across divisions, but um, Sean as the Upland Game Staff Specialist, I think. Um, could also give a, a recent update on sage grouse status. There are some, some reports that are pending from USGS that would probably be worth mentioning, but also to the fact uh, you mentioned habitat um, and, and what's being done for sage grouse habitat. And much of the, the acreage in that 422,240 acres that we have restored since 2016 much of that is sage grouse habitat. And so um, we're doing a lot for it. There's still a lot that can be done, but to your point, it, if that was something the commission wanted to consider in the future agenda as an agenda item, <clears throat> we could give you a more succinct overview of efforts towards sage grouse. Look, I, um, I really think this is important. Uh, I, I would like to be more proactive in this area. I mean, our majority of our, our Northern state is sagebrush habitat. Um, I believe that uh, this stance that the federal government and state kind of reached in terms of the sage grouse was very important for our state. I don't want that to be overlooked by anybody because 
should that species have been listed, it would have really um, changed and altered the use of sagebrush habitat by everyone, by everyone. And um, I don't, you know, it's like, it's nice when it passes and goes by, but when I saw the sage grouse, um, their numbers and what's going on with them. And, you know, we're, we're still hunting them. And I understand a little bit more impliedly as to why, but I would like to see the commission really stay on top of that. I mean, that is not a, a, a matter that the state should look away from after having reached that agreement with federal government and listing. We need to be aware of what's going on showing, I believe, from a state perspective that we take this extremely seriously and um, all of us should be on top of our game with what's going on in sagebrush habitat. That's my opinion. That's my personal opinion. So if other commissioners feel the same, I mean, I know we all have diverse backgrounds, but I mean, this is sagebrush habitat is where you're going to go hunt. You know, at the end of the day, I mean, we have mule deer there. And I think that um, we haven't really heard very much. I've been on the commission quite a bit of time now to say we haven't had an overview of that. Um, what's being done on the ground. We should be able to brag about our efforts, right? If anything, like we're doing really positive things on the ground. Um, we want to be making all of that habitat better. And we want to have our numbers of sage grouse increasing and we want to put our efforts toward that. So I don't know, I would personally like to hear more about that. Um, I don't know how the other commissioners feel at this time. I think Secretary Wasley would like to add something. Go ahead, Secretary yeah. Wasley. Thank you, Madam Chair and Commissioner Hubs. Thanks for bringing that up. Um, we would very much appreciate the opportunity to, to shine up bright light on all that is occurring in the sagebrush biome. This month of March has provided a number of um, significant releases. Um, USGS uh, just released the sagebrush conservation strategy <clears throat> that included uh, the collective efforts of compilation of 94 different scientists uh, discussing the, the challenges and the threats. Uh, <clears throat> Habitat Division Administrator Janae referenced the forthcoming uh, USGS population uh, report. There's some, some incredible uh, products, incredible effort, research, uh, implementation. Uh, it, it isn't as though anybody has uh, turned their back or turned a blind eye to sagebrush or sage grouse. We've certainly been remiss in taking advantage of this opportunity to, to share with you all that is occurring. Uh, but if, if it's, you know, in the interest of the, the commission, uh, we would love to put uh, sagebrush efforts, sagebrush conservation efforts on a future agenda, uh, perhaps under the department uh, project update item and share with you everything that's occurring in the, you know, across the, the, the range, including potential uh, for, you know, receiving a, another petition to list. Um, what the harvest data looks like, what the trend data looks like, what the condition of the sagebrush is, um, we'd be happy to share that. Okay. There's a tremendous amount occurring, and we'd be more than happy to share that. I think that would be a great 
um, update from the department. Thank you, Commissioner Hubs, for bringing that up. Can we let the record reflect that Commissioner Allenberg has joined us? Welcome. Uh, okay, if there aren't any other questions for Mr. Janae, we'll move on to Mr. Vasey. Good morning, Chris Vasey, Conservation Education Chief. Thank you for the opportunity to update you on our recent events and outreach. Conservation educators participated in several virtual conferences and workshops, including the National Association for Interpretation. Presentations included new virtual education programs. Staff also attended a conservation education conference and presented on NDAO's program called Nevada Knockout. Staff participated in the Recreation Boating and Fishing Foundation annual state marketing workshop to brainstorm and discuss issues and ideas for coming year. Topics included diversity inclusion, R3, and delighting the customer and how to make it easier to get out and fish and have fun. Outreach and education efforts the last week in February, our urban wildlife coordinators from Western region and Southern region facilitated it on an, an online effort called Urban Wildlife Week. Throughout the week, many live webinar, webinars covering many different urban wildlife topics were featured. Seven programs were facilitated throughout the week with a total of 353 participants. Topics covered included living with coyotes, living with mule deer, rattlesnakes versus gopher snakes, uh, baby animals, and feeding urban wildlife. Weekly big game tag application webinars are planned for March 20 through, um, 23rd through May 3rd. Six webinars will be planned for this time period. So this will help new returning customers with their application questions and also uh, new customers in general. Staff has identified frequently asked questions and plan to address those questions to reduce barriers to applying. The webinars will be recorded and posted to NDAO's YouTube channel. Outdoor education coordinators developing new wildlife conservation campaigns so that we can better engage with a variety of audiences. One example of this is our Women's History Month campaign in which throughout the month of March, we are highlighting inspirational women throughout the conservation world, including in-Dallas female professionals. He's also exploring ways to communicate the value of wild food for sharing recipes and our social media platforms regularly. Media highlights are the conservation staff posted their first volunteer takeover on department's Instagram. For one week, the department volunteer took over the department's Instagram account posting one post per day about their work and love of volunteering with the department. The takeover had a very positive response from the public and the staff is working on posting more volunteer takeovers in the near future. Staff planned our various emails and social media posts to promote Nevada big game application period. The first email was sent out in late February encouraging residents and non-residents to remind their friends and family to complete their hunter education certificate online a variety of other emails and social media posts covering important dates and big game application period reminders will be sent out through the month of May. Media interviews featuring conservation staff over the last month have included interviews with Reno Gazette Journal, Sacramento Bee on practicing responsible recreation at Chickpea Ridge, an interview on securing attractants to ensure bears thin for the winter with KRNB in Reno and a sit down with Carson Now on bear awareness. Multiple news stations across the state also covered the increase of outdoor recreation announced by the Director Wazley in COVID-19 response call with the press. Conservation Education Staff Media Monitoring Service called Critical Mention 
reported an audience of 12 million people nationwide for the month of February on broadcast, print, online news, stories featuring Endow. For the last several weeks, conservation education staff has contributed to a submission to the governor's weekly newsletter to showcase the different projects and educational opportunities that we worked on. Some of those topics include water halls to guzzlers, department education webinars, fire restoration, and Women's History Month campaign highlighting endowed female professionals. A video on our fire restoration work and the conservation education shared on social media and sent to the governor's office was shared with the governor's Twitter page and covered by local media. Several other submissions to the governor's newsletter have also been covered by the local media. And that wraps it up for ConEd. Thank you. Any questions for Mr. Vasey? Mr. Hubs? Yes, my only thing that came up, Mr. Vasey, was the, the, the program that you put on with Living with Coyotes that kind of speaks to today's <laughs> agenda items. And is that like, what, how, what kind of program is that? And what, what are you telling the public? I'd be really interested for our commission to know that. And is and who does this reach? Um, just because, look, I live in I live in Henderson in Las Vegas, Clark County, right? And I live in an area that has an HOA, and that HOA like tops on a Facebook, right? And we have it's up in the Del Webb area, so we have all the you know, desert um, corridors here. So we have a lot of coyotes. Uh, they're all over. And then we, we have the Sloan Canyon behind us, um, conservation area. So we, we see a lot of coyotes and my neighbors are terrified of coyotes. Like you would think it's like having a huge wolf run around the neighborhood. I mean, it's like alert. There was a coyote on this you know, street. And there's just, just this huge fear of, um, coyotes in general. And I mean, I, I take it seriously. Like if you have a little animal, you know, take care of your animal, they can be eaten. We all know that. Right. But like, if you're walking your dog or if you're out, nope, it's a very, very rare. It's extremely rare for a coyote to harm a person. I did hear about something in San Francisco with the urban coyotes, but I would like to know what our state is saying to the public. I think that's important for us too, to know um, what our stance is, what our education is, who it reaches, because some of the individuals in my own neighborhood are extremely terrified of coyotes. And I don't really think, and when I read it, I feel bad because I'm like, they're not going to harm you. They're probably running away from you. And you usually see them in the morning and at night. And so I would be interested in knowing what our stance is and what we're educating the public on. So it's a good question and I um, appreciate the question. And we have uh, two urban wildlife coordinator, education coordinators that uh, one is in the Western region and one is in the Southern region. Those, those urban wildlife coordinators are in charge of educating and doing programming within their regions. And a lot of the times it is answering the exact question that you just had. What are, what are we, how do we handle uh, coyotes within your backyard or in, in your neighborhood? And there's a lot of information that we've getting, given not only through campaign, but educational programs. We've also done HOA programs 
um, to go into the extent of the, the program itself, I think you were there for the presentation from the urban wildlife coordinators and what they have been doing. And that was the outreach that they have done. Um, we've done that presentation several times, not, but you know, once in the Southern region, once in the Western region. So, you know, those programs are pretty expansive as far as what we are doing to try to educate the public. Being that said, you know, 2.5 or 2 million people in Las Vegas our campaign efforts are basically done a lot more on, uh, you know, uh, platforms like Nextdoor, and that's where we get our information out probably more accurately than to meet with every single homeowner in the Las Vegas area. So, you know, the HOAs, we try to get information to them on the newsletter. We try to get them through campaigns and media. We, we do some buys through social media to try to get information to them. Um, but there's definitely a, a whole program based on trying to get that information out. Um, it's a hard market within the Las Vegas area to try to make those buys, as you probably well know, to try to get those campaigns out as big and broad as we can. But we are doing a very good effort with the um, limited amount of resource that we do have, which is the two, in, two employees and the campaign programming that we do. But we can do another presentation again, and we would be happy to do that. Um, to, to see what those recent efforts have been. We do have updates too, as far as how our reach has gone, how many people we've reached, and we can give that to you in the next presentation as well. Okay. Yes, Commissioner Hobbs. Thank you. I think that would be great, but um, I was wondering, um, more importantly, if there is some type of media that can easily be shared, like not a presentation, but you know how there was the video on the, the wild horses. I thought that was really informative. And if you send that, it was also interesting to watch, like the videography. It was like watching the Nature Channel. Yeah, we, and it, we do have some webinars that have that. And we've yeah, been with coyotes I think and if you that is like the, the type of media that needs to be shared with the HOAs. I would totally help you out, Mr. Vasey, down here. I can research. I know so many HOAs just from being in the legal profession to have it broadcast on all of the next doors or we do a Facebook um, a neighborhood watch face a Facebook. And I, I always just, I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, neighborhood watch Facebook is supposed to be like, we saw a criminal and it will be like, we saw a coyote, you know? And I'm like, okay, that's a wildlife species. It's not going to rob your house. You know, it's all going to be okay. And they live here in the desert, you know? So there is this elevated fear of coyotes that's it's really striking and it's, it makes me kind of chuckle, but then it's not funny because they're terrified. Well, and I, I, you are speaking to exactly what we want to do is empower the neighbors and, and have them with the educational tools to spread that word. And, you know, we'll give you all the information that you need, both on the print media form, video form, it's all there. And we would be happy to share that with you and we'll get, I will do my best to get it to every HOA I know around the suburban area because it is like we, we deal, I have a ton of friends who are HOA attorneys. We can, if it are, are strongly linked in in the, in the Clark County community. And I think we need to kind of broadcast that in an informative way and a way that people will stop and watch. 
And, yeah. you know, and, and people look at that all the time on social media because they check their social media, the thing pops up and they're like, oh, what's going on in the neighborhood, you know? And that, I think that's a great mechanism to get that out because I think that fear needs to be kind of de-escalated. Well, we have two YouTube videos that were profession, professionally um, produced and we'll give you those. One was definitely Southern region, the other is Western region. And the other is a webinar on living wildlife. And then I'll give you those as well. And, and as in any print that you may need to spread the word, we, we would <laughs> need an army. That's what we need. Okay. That sounds good. Thank you. Yep. Thank you for that great update. Di Director Wosley, do you want to move on? I, I realize I stole your agenda item. <laughs> no, that's fine. <clears throat> Feel free. Uh, I think diversity division is up next. Morning, everyone. Jennifer Newmark, Wildlife Diversity Division Administrator. Wildlife Diversity Division staff have been preparing our annual grants and planning for the upcoming field season. During the often slower winter months, staff work on reports, developing plans for upcoming field seasons, and compile and analyze their data. This past year, diversity staff have spent significant amount of time addressing our data backlog, and we've compiled over 7,000 observation records from about the past five years. We are working on developing two expanded projects for the upcoming field season. One project will focus on expanding surveys for pale and dark kangaroo mice from central Nevada to the northwestern region. The focus of these surveys will be baseline information on where these species occur and how this distribution compares to historic surveys. Diversity staff will also be surveying for Humboldt yellow pine chipmunks in the northwest region. This subspecies is a habitat specialist and lives in white bark pine, which is a limited habitat type in the area. Surveys will be focused on areas of suitable habitat that have not been previously surveyed and we're hoping that more uh, refined habitat associations will be described from these efforts. Typically during the winter months, wildlife diversity staff survey known bat hibernation roosts to collect samples both from bats and from the rock surfaces to test for white nose syndrome. Due to the pandemic, staff did not conduct these annual surveys this year, but are instead preparing a disease response plan for white nose syndrome. Um, this will help the department and our partners be better prepared if the disease is documented in Nevada. Two other plans are being revised, the Nevada Bat Conservation Plan and the Nevada Wildlife Action Plan. The Bat Plan is a product of the Nevada Bat Working Group, of which NDOW is a member. This plan is being developed with partners from several other state and federal agencies, as well as NGOs and consultants. The plan was last revised in 2006, and since then, both our staff as well as our partners have greatly increased our knowledge about bats, and this necessitates the revision. The Nevada Wildlife Action Plan revision has formally kicked off. As the commission knows, this plan is required to be revised every 10 years. It is the biological strategic plan for the agency and it currently highlights 256 species and 22 key habitat types as priorities and it describes management goals and objectives for all of those priorities. 
The revision will be a major focus for several divisions and is due in September of 2022. You will be hearing much more about this in the future as we make progress on it and we'll be keeping the commission informed of each of our milestones. That's all I have for our report today. Thank you, Ms. Newmark. Any questions for Ms. Newmark? <laughs> Commissioner Hubs. <laughs> I am really sorry. I wanted to participate yesterday afternoon and I think um, I'm like coming to this meeting like out of the gate, but okay. My only, this is coming um, just from a collective mindset on what I'm hearing from the department. And I think this is really obvious, but I could be wrong. But what about we talk about these diseases? I mean, I don't know. I've heard three reports, two of which talk about we've got the white nose disease. We've got the Smith Valley mule deer. You know, we've got this drives me insane is the bighorn sheep, you know, and the muco, whatever it is, mucoplasia or mycoplasia. <laughs> I'm sorry, but I would like to know what is going on with our wildlife. And we got the salmonella with the birds. And I think we need to also know about everything going on. I mean, this is really important. I mean, we just went through a global pandemic. Look, it's not brain science here and it's hitting our wildlife. Is the state ready to react? Do we know what's going on? If, if we have detected viruses that are impacting and killing our wildlife, what are we doing about it? Who's in charge of this? Like who, who are the specialists on the ground? What, what species are, are the most impacted? That's another issue I believe needs to come to our commission. Like, what are we doing here? Because it's hard to sit there and be like, okay, white nose syndrome. Like, what is that? Who, you know, is that, how does that spread? Who's watching that? Who's the specialist in charge? What other states have this problem? Where did it come from? You know, it's kind of disturbing. And I, I just, I, I, I don't feel like with a bighorn sheep, like we have any answers right now. And I want to know, like, what is, what are we doing? Are we pushing for answers? And, and um, are we taking this seriously? Uh, because every year it's the same thing, at least with that species. I don't want it to be the white nose, you know, syndrome 10 years from now. And we just talk about it at a commission meeting and it moves on. Like, wait a second, is that killing? Who is it killing? Is it spreadable? Is it going across species lines? Like, where does this come from? I think we all need to kind of get a grip on how this can decimate and wipe out wildlife populations. And we need to be really on top of that as well. And so I'm sorry that I'm kind of on a grandstand this morning, but I, I find this really interesting and I am excited. And like I said, maybe it tapers over from yesterday and not being able to participate, but I think that's highly important. And I don't know what we're doing there either. Director Wosley, do you want to speak to Commissioner Hub's concerns? Uh, absolutely, and uh, we appreciate your interest and concerns. And again, this is another area. Um, you know, we've tried to include these updates in our department activity reports, 
and then we've had some specific agenda items. We have a wildlife health program. Um, we have a wildlife veterinarian um, that's housed in our, our game division, but it is their work is not exclusive to that division. They work with diversity division, they work with fisheries. Um, there are some of these pathogens that have been present on the landscape for decades, and there are some emerging pathogens. Um, I think that what you are speaking to is a, a broader concern about the relationship of humans and wildlife and what the interactions and the condition of the wildlife habitat means in terms of uh, the presence and transmission of some of these pathogens. And as we look, uh, you know, no further than, than coronavirus, but certainly, uh, you know, bird flu, swine flu, Ebola, you know, all of these pathogens and issues that are plaguing us, uh, whether it be in Nevada or somewhere else in the world, have some nexus to wildlife and the relationship between those species and the condition of their habitat. So uh, a lot of what we're talking about is uh, not unique to Nevada, but it certainly, um, you know, is an opportunity for us to to share, you know, with with this board. Should there be an interest in doing so, um, everything from you know tortoise you know, respiratory diseases to the potential for white nose fungus uh, to some fish pathogens and issues. I mean, this, this is the the world of of conservation. These are the challenges and wildlife management that we deal with every day. Um, and so, you know, this could be another department project update. Uh, should there be an interest in doing so, we can hear an update from, from our wildlife health specialists and program, from our veterinarian, talking about the diseases, uh, you know, those ongoing threats, what the department's doing. I, I can share with you, we're active uh, with our congressional delegation in seeking funding, federal funding to deal with some of these issues, chronic wasting disease, for example. Um, you know, we, we are constantly seeking federal funds, the Aquatic Invasive Species Program. There are a lot of challenges to, to conservation and disease is only one of those. And it, it's also linked to the condition of the habitats. But we'd be, we'd be happy to share, um, you know, we, we often give updates here from WAFWA, uh, the Western Association of Fish and Wildlife Agency meetings or the Association of Fish and Wildlife um, International uh, Association. And we have, uh, working groups, subcommittees, committee, committees that are all about wildlife health, human wildlife interaction, um, where there's literally teams of wildlife veterinarians uh, sharing thoughts, experiences, challenges, opportunities. So um, certainly appreciate your concern, but much like the sagebrush issue, there is, there is a tremendous amount of work, energy, and effort that is ongoing. Um, this commission's uh, perhaps you know, unawareness of that is is probably um, only because we haven't, um, you know, had a focused presentation on that, but we'd be happy to do so. Okay, I think it's important. I've, I've written a couple of things down for future meetings. Thank you. Any other questions? Okay, moving on, Sir, Secretary Wosley. I believe next up we've got the fisheries division and John Schobert, fisheries division administrator, will give that report. Yes, thank you, Tony. Um, good morning, uh, Madam Chair and Commissioners. For the record, uh, John Schobert, fisheries division administrator. Uh, relative to our aquatic invasive species program, we have received authority from the governor's finance office to hire our contract personnel to fully staff our AIS watercraft inspection stations statewide for the 2021 boating season. Northern Nevada stations at Lahontan, Rye Patch, and South Fork Reservoirs in Topaz Lake will begin operations in early April. 
Our lake mead stations operate year round and have been averaging around 300 watercraft inspections per month, which will increase significantly as we move into spring. Uh, also related to our AIS program and specifically invasive zebra mussels, uh, we recently received a notification from the US Fish and Wildlife Service that several national pet store chains and some independent aquarium retailers had received shipments of aquarium moss balls, which are a decorative aquarium plant that can be shipped in a moist environment uh, that came directly from the Ukraine and they were infested with invasive zebra mussels. Uh, we have identified and contacted all known retailers in Nevada that had the products. All of them have removed products from sale to quarantine and we are working with them to have the items safely disposed of. At least two products that we inspected had potentially viable invasive mussels on them. This is just one example of the unexpected pathways where invasive species can create a significant threat to Nevada's fisheries and aquatic habitats. Uh, relative to water conditions, projected reservoir storage and stream flow for this summer, particularly in northern Nevada, continues to be a concern. As of mid-February, reservoir storage in eastern Sierra watersheds was around 30% below the levels at this time last year and 60% lower in the Humboldt Basin. For example, the Houghton Reservoir as of yesterday is only at about one third of its capacity. Streamflow forecasts currently range from 50 to 80% of average, depending on location. Um, unless we get significant late winter precipitation, um, we're gonna be probably facing some, some concerning conditions this summer for some of our fisheries. Uh, Lahontan cutthroat trout uh, programs. The US Fish and Wildlife Service's Lahontan National Fish Hatchery will be able to provide a full allocation of Lahontan cutthroat trout for Truckee River stocking in 2021 for the first time in several years with over 70,000 catchable sized fish that will be made available. This will allow us to reallocate some of our triploid rainbow trout to other northern waters, including multiple urban fishing ponds to help meet increased angler demand. Also relative to LCT, staff are working with the Idaho Department of Fish and Game on a research project using what are called YY brook trout as an alternative method to removing uh, non-native fish and restoring hot and cutthroat trout in two streams in Humboldt County. This process involves stocking only male brook trout along with mechanical removal to create eventually an all-male brook trout population over time which potentially will eliminate the need for chemical treatments uh, to restore LCT in some streams. Uh, uh, Western region staff have been addressing an ongoing issue with periodic low flows in the East Walker River because of water releases from California that were significantly below the legally required minimums. This affects the sport fishery because of anchor ice development in the river during cold weather periods. We are working directly with the California Department of Fish and Game and other regulators to resolve the problem and ensure compliance in future winter flow periods. Uh, at Lake Mead, uh, with bass tournaments, Bass Pro Shops will be hosting a U.S. Open Amateur Team Championships bass tournament at Lake Mead on April 24th with an anticipated re registration of 250 or more boats. Of significance, the entry fees from this tournament and others in this pro series will be donated to the National Fish Habitat Partnership. 
to support fisheries habitat enhancement projects in Nevada and other states nationally. There are 20 FHPs nationally, and Endow is a partner in three of those fish habitat partnerships, the Western Native Trout Initiative, the Desert Fish Habitat Partnership, and the Reservoirs Fish Habitat Partnership. Our staff will be at the tournament to collect fisheries data from the weigh-in and to collect uh, and to conduct aquatic invasive species inspections and decontaminations as needed on participating watercraft. Uh, relative to our Native Aquatic Species Program, in late February, Endow staff assisted the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and other partners with the semi-annual population counts for the endangered Moapidase in the Upper Muddy River in Clark County. The population estimate this February was 2,033 fish, the highest winter count and the second highest estimate overall since before 2005. This speaks to the success of ongoing recovery efforts for the species in the Upper Muddy River and its tributaries. Although the semi-annual population surveys for Devil's Hole pupfish and Devil's Hole itself have been suspended because of COVID concerns, it was possible to conduct a population count at the Ash Meadows Fish Conservation Facility near Devil's Hole that has a refugium population of the pupfish in a large semi-underground tank. That count was completed in late January and found more than 150 adult pupfish, which was the highest count in history for that facility. Uh, Finally, um, in Dixie Valley, Western Region staff spent considerable time reviewing and providing comments on the Bureau of Land Management's final environmental assessment for the Dixie Meadows Geothermal Utilization Project in Dixie Valley near Fallon. This proposed project is adjacent to the only known population of the Dixie Valley toad, which has been petitioned for Endangered Species Act listing as endangered. We anticipate that if the project goes forward as planned, it will likely result in significant litigation for one or more, from one or more third-party conservation organizations. Uh, and that concludes my report and updates, uh, but I'd be more than happy to answer any questions. Thank you, Madam Chair. Thank you, Mr. Schoberg. Any questions for the Fisheries Division? Okay, seeing none, I think you're excused. Thank you. <laughs> mm -hmm. Thanks, John. Madam Chair, um, next up is uh, Ms. Kim Munoz, uh, Division Administrator for Data and Technology Services Division. Thank you, Director Rosley. Kim Munoz for uh, Data and Technology Services Division, Division Chief. For the 2020 big game season, the end of January, the Data and Technology Services Licensing and Hunt Application Units wrapped up the 2020 big game season with a deadline of reporting harvest return cards. The final submission was 46.5%. This left only 965 cards that did not get reported. For the 2021, 2021 hunt season, we kicked off the 2021 hunt season with a very successful and smooth spring turkey draw. We did see a 9% increase in turkey applications from 2020. The first turkey season actually opens this, wins, uh, this weekend. Non-resident guided mule deer hunt, the non-resident guided mule deer hunt applications opened on February 9th and they closed on March 15th. We'll be conducting the draw on Monday, the 22nd. We also saw a 13% increase in applications for this hunt um, from the 2020 season. For the 2021 big game applications, 
The division is currently gearing up for the 2021 big game applications, which actually open Monday as well on the 22nd. We're excited for several new features that we put in place for clients uh, with the Calcomy system this season. The first of them being the ability to allow a hunter to edit their application before the deadline um, in order to join an existing party. In prior years, if you wanted to join a party after you submitted your app, you had to withdraw your application, losing your application fees, and then reapplying, paying additional application fees. And at that point, you would join your party. This new feature makes the user experience easy and doesn't incur any extra fees for our clients. Additionally, we've added an informational pop-up message explaining what it means to be an alternate. Uh, hunters will get the pop-up if they do not select the alternate box, um, at which time they can go back and uh, once it explains to them what an alternate is, they can go back and check it or they can continue forward uh, selecting not to be an alternate. We've also added an informational link about what it is to be a party hunt. Uh, we hope both of these make the user experience smoother and reduce the commonly asked questions we receive every year. The Heritage Committee. The Heritage Committee is now accepting vendor proposals for the 2022 Heritage Auction Chags. The deadline for this submission is April 19th, 2021. Our GIS division, our geographical information system staff completed the all new Raptor Nest application for the diversity division. They've also updated the uh, biologist map, the contact map by adding in contacts for the game division um, our LE game wardens are added in there. Diversity, uh, diversity and habitat staff contact information is also added into it by region. They've completed a new wild horse re reservoir map for the law enforcement division and a harvest check-in dashboard for the game division. The information technology division. Um, finally, the information technology staff have gotten all of the game warden cell phones enrolled in a mobile device management manager we call this an MDM. They've also gotten new firewalls installed at the Battle Mountain location, which now gives them access to the Spillman software uh, through DPS for their case management. We received the laptops that were purchased from the CARES Act funding, and they are now actively being deployed to 38 staff members. And that's all I have for the data and technology services. I will be happy to answer any questions that anyone might have. Okay, thank you for that update, Ms. Munoz. I'm, I'm pleased to see the alternate status updates that we've been talking about. Any questions for Ms. Munoz? Nope, okay, thank you. So Madam Chair, we have one final um, department activity report from the law enforcement division, but we also have, uh, a. We're gonna hear from law enforcement division today under the department project update agenda item later on the agenda. And that uh, law enforcement report um, is relatively new, but it was out of an express desire by this body to <clears throat> kind of hear a culmination of uh, previous years, cases and, and efforts. And so uh, there'll be a much more uh, detailed opportunity for engagement with the law enforcement division uh, this afternoon, and I'll, I'll turn it over to Chief Maynard and, and let him decide uh, how much of this information he wants to present now versus how much of it may be uh, redundant with this afternoon's presentation. Uh, Chief Maynard. 
Thank you, Director Wisely. Uh, I'll strive for brevity um, as there will be a program update as, as Director Wisely mentioned later on for the year in review. What I'll go over real quick is just uh, what's happened basically over the last month so that um, they're, they're kind of separated and the one later on will be a, a major overview. Um, in wildlife patrol and investigations, there have been numerous wildlife cases ongoing in the past month, including game wardens conducting residency cases throughout the state. Investigators have been working with Arizona, California, and Colorado with records regarding people that have been revoked in the state but are still applying in other states. Um, in the Eastern region, a posting, poaching investigation involving a Texas resident poaching a large mule deer buck resulted in a suspect receiving a gross misdemeanor conviction with a $5,000 civil penalty plus a $2,000 bail and fees to include forfeiture of a crossbow and the taxidermied head. Game wardens investigated a dead deer in the Harrison Pass area with an apparent mountain lion kill and an investigation into an alleged shooting from a helicopter. Game wardens have worked on a number of urban wildlife issues, including alleged shooting of gray squirrels with a pellet gun, an individual killing ducks at the Boulder City Pond, goosing a power line, an alleged rabid coyote call that turned out to be a gray fox, a Cooper's hawk that had been shot, and wardens investigated an ad on a local site trying to sell raccoons, which turned out to be a long distance scam that the game wardens reported and had the ad removed. There were also reports, uh, multiple reports throughout the state of people feeding deer. There were multiple mountain lion incidents, including a call out in Las Vegas incident initiated by Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department and animal control, but this turned into a community outreach issue. Um, this is now one of the busiest times of year we're coming into for urban wildlife calls involving numerous species. It's anticipated that there will be a significant uh, increase in calls for service in the months ahead. Multiple trapping cases were investigated, including a, baiting, a baited trap set, uh, trap registration violation, and investigation of trap too close to a road. And game wardens also released a mountain lion caught in a trap. For boating safety coal, uh, two southern region game wardens performed a water rescue of three people in the water during a severe weather event with waves over four feet high on Lake Mead. This resulted in the survival of all three subjects, including two of which who were not wearing personal flotation devices. And multiple emails and calls of commendation, which came in from the public who witnessed the event. Another game warden also made a rescue of a kayaker who capsized in high winds and waves on Lake Mead and who was suffering from exposure due to the time of year. Um, in headquarters and administration, the law enforcement division continued participation in the COVID-19 vaccination rollout for tier one and tier two uh, individuals. As first responders, game wardens were in the initial tier of persons offered vaccination due to their routine contact with the public. Enhanced personal protective equipment, where coupled with vaccination helps ensure a safer environment for both the public and our officers. We also have an open recruitment for seven game warden positions, um, two in the northern regions and five in the south, continued with physical testing on March 5th in Las Vegas. This is followed uh, next week by several days of interviews and several weeks of background investigation. The total process to get successful applicants through all the steps of hiring Academy and completing field training and evaluation program is approximately one year start to finish before solo officer status. 
Pursuant to collective bargaining legislation passed in 2019, the chief game warden has been involved in ongoing collective bargaining and mediation with the Nevada Police Union on behalf of the department. All law enforcement division command staff have been working on getting leadership and collective bargaining training, which is offered through the state training process in order to better prepare for the transition ahead. And that is my presentation. Thank you, Chief Maynard. Uh, any questions for Chief Maynard? Yes, Commissioner McNinch. Thank you, Madam Chair. So Mike, you mentioned um, the, the people coming in with revoked licenses and uh, essentially uh, operating without licenses and permits. If those folks are, are caught, um, what kind of penalties do they face? Um, I mean, clearly what they've gone through isn't enough of a deterrent. So how, do, how does it ratchet up for those folks? I mean, what's, what's your experience? Well, it could be any number of things. Um, it could be a single misdemeanor event. Um, if they actually illicitly obtain a tag and go kill an animal, it could be a felony. Um, so there's, and the spectrum in between. So we've had several cases where there were multiple violations. There can be uh, four or five misdemeanors coupled with a uh, gross or a felony charge as well. So there's no exact way to tell what the penalty would be. Um, suffice to say that they run a gamut of violations by how far they proceed into the process. Yeah, and I guess it just seems like, you know, the, the wildlife laws in Nevada, um, man, they should, they should catch people's attention. They, they, they're, they're strong enough to really, they should be a deterrent. But the gall of some of these individuals to, to, to continue, um, uh, you know, I, I would love to see, uh, I mean, if there's ever opportunity, there, there's, you know, this, this would be something that I think the legislation, the legislature would really grab onto and um, just send it over the top and just make, make, the, uh, uh, make the, uh, the, the punishment to fit the audacity a little bit and uh, really, really put it to them, not, not with loss of, of privileges, which I mean, I would be all for, for sure, but certainly in the form of penalties and time in jail and, and uh, really send the message. That it's just not going to be tolerated. I know, I know you guys do a great job with it already, but um, if ever there was a place to, to put the foot down on something, um, man, it's the gall. It, it kind of got my blood flowing just hearing you say that it happens. It's just, you know, it does, but it's, it's man, like, unbelievable. It is, and it's very upsetting to all our hunters out there. I mean, because this is not legitimate hunting. This is these are poachers. These are people who are criminals, and intentionally committing criminal acts, and uh, with disregard to the greater impact that they have on the resource and on hunting. And uh, you know, it unfortunately a lot of times people view it as this is somehow. Uh, it's not the same as the individuals that are out there hunting. These are people no. that are clearly yeah. crossing the line and they know what they're doing. Um, and we do have a, an administrative revocation process, which I'm sure many of uh, the commissioner is aware of, um, where depending on the demerits that they get, and usually if they're doing this, they're going to easily get to that level where there's going to be a revocation, depending on when we catch them in that process. 
Thank you, Chief Maynard. Any other questions for, we're gonna hear more from him shortly, I think. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Secretary Wasley, is that the completion of the department activity report? It is, and uh, I just wanna express our gratitude for the opportunity to continue to share clearly uh, by some of the, you know, surprise that was evident in some of the responses to some of these activities. Um, there's value in us sharing this. And so we, we genuinely appreciate the opportunity. We know that it does take a little bit of time. I do think uh, our, our new uh, format of providing that opportunity to each division administrator is probably a little better than listening to me drone on and on. Um, and so I appreciate their willingness to do that and, and very much appreciate the opportunity to share um, you know, the, the broader efforts and challenges and opportunities within the department. So thank you, Madam Chair. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Okay, that concludes the activity report. We'll move on to 15B litigation report. Deputy Attorney General K Craig Burkett, a report will be provided on the Nevada Department of Wildlife litigation. Good morning again, Madam Chair. Um, I try to reserve my uh, comments for significant developments in litigation. Uh, and as many of you know, litigation is a long, slow slog many times. Um, so I really don't have anything uh, of significance to report to the commission at this time. We do have a litigation re re report we provided. Um, be happy to answer any questions related to that. I would offer to Commissioner Hubs that um, the state of Nevada, through the Attorney General's office, uh, myself and Tori Sondheim are preparing a motion in, in, in intervention of a listing decision by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service as it relates to the bi-state sage-grouse population. We will expect briefing in that case to be sort of late summer, early fall. And I'd be happy to share that briefing with you because it highlights the efforts of the state of Nevada, state of California, conservation partners uh, as it relates to efforts to conserve uh, and the by state trees grouse population. And that will be a good source of information, I think, for you to understand what the state of Nevada is doing, in addition to uh, any other uh, departmental reports. But I'd be happy to share that with you as an attorney. I think I thought maybe you'd provide, find that uh, interesting. Um, with that, I'd be happy to offer uh, any or answer any questions that the commission has. Hey, any questions for Mr. Burkett? Yes, Commissioner Hubs. I think that is that information to intervene in this matter would be helpful for all of us. Um, not even, I mean, if we need to even talk about it, but I think a consolidated approach to this um, as our wildlife commission is important you know, um, that we can go out and talk about this with accurate knowledge, um, especially with in just individuals in the community that our colleagues and our co-commissioners, our co we all know what our approach is from the state. So we're kind of concerted in our voice. I would feel better if we all had all of the information felt, um, if we have questions about the trajectory or what our approach was, we could we can definitely talk about them. But um, if if the approach looks like it's a consolidated approach, I think it's better for the state. 
for us to all be behind, be, be behind you, you know, um, Mr. Burkett and your, your legal representation too. So, um, it doesn't blindside anybody. We know what we're doing. We know what the efforts we've put in. We know what our, our final goal is, and we're all working toward that actively. I think that only makes our state stronger. Agreed. Great. Okay, any other questions for Mr. Burkett? Okay, seeing none, I'm gonna call for a 10 minute break. It's 10.30, let's come back at 10.40-ish. Uh, Thank you.
Okay, if we can all come back, please. Great. All right, moving on. Is everybody ready to agenda item 15C, Mule Deer Enhancement Program Update Division Administrator Mike Scott, informational. The department will provide an update on the current status of the Mule Deer Enhancement Program that was approved by the commission at the June 26, 2020 meeting. Mr. Scott. Thank you, Madam Chair, members of the commission. I'm Mike Scott, uh, administrator for the game division. I will try to be fairly brief with this. Um, recently, three teams have had uh, meetings. Um, the Lander Area 15 team, the Elko County Area 6 team, and the Elko County Area 789 team have had held their meetings. Um, these meetings have consisted of game biologists giving presentations on the status of mule deer, mule deer habitat, um, and there's, I know there's several other meetings, uh, teams that are getting uh, ready to hold their meetings here in the near future. Um, so things are progressing uh, a little bit slower than anticipated, but they are moving forward. And one thing I, I really wanna make clear is that I, I wanna encourage all of the CAB members, interested sportsmen, women um, to participate and be involved in this process. This is an opportunity that you have to, to say what you wanna see with, with regard to what, what the department should be doing uh, for the benefit of mule deer. So I, I really wanna encourage people to get involved in this process. I, I, some of these meetings, I've attended a couple of them and I, I've been, I don't know, a little bit disappointed in the, the turnout. Um, the team members have showed up and they're, they're um, interested and um, you know they're they're engaged, but we really want other people to engage in this process as well. Um, Commissioner Keel and I need to get together um, in the near future and decide on a date for the next oversight committee meeting. Um, topics that uh, I I want to put on that agenda um, will include uh, adopting a code of conduct. Um, I have also had some recent inquiries about creating a charter for the program. Um, these inquiries have come from some of the land managing agency personnel that are, uh, it, I guess it would be related to their participation in the process. Um, we also will need to introduce at least one uh, ex officio member of the oversight committee. Um, and then some of the other things that I would like to uh, put on that agenda would be for uh, the oversight committee to review some of the forms that we've created or I've created or um, game division personnel have created, including the, the limiting factor ranking form, the needs assessment form, the project submission form, and then the project approval matrix. So I think those are, those are all subjects that I would like to discuss at, at uh, the next oversight committee meeting, but I would ask Commissioner Keel if he has other thoughts or anything that, that I need to be doing to organize uh, or help organize that next meeting. 
Commissioner Kill, do you have anything to add? No, that sounds good for me, Mike. Um, thank you for the update. And I was kind of thinking if we are going to have an April meeting, could we schedule the oversight committee meeting to be in conjunction uh, with the regular April commission meeting? I know we had talked previously about trying to set up uh, a meeting prior to this March meeting, but with so much on the agenda yesterday and today, uh, we knew there was going to be a, a lot going on. So I'm not sure we have any clarity on the April meeting or not, but those are kind of my thoughts. And thank you. Thanks, Commissioner Keel. Um, I, without having the, the calendar in front of me for the April meeting, I, I'm not 100% sure when the dates are, but we can certainly schedule that. Um, I, I, do you want to try for, say, the Wednesday before the um, commission meeting? If I may, I believe we're looking at April 16th for the commission meeting, and that's a legislative update uh, as well as I think there's one other topic from yesterday that we may add to that meeting. So I don't know uh, if Secretary Wasley has anything, any concerns about adding additional topics to that meeting or not. Um, if, Madam Chair, the one item that you're referencing from yesterday, I, I don't believe we will need to put that on that agenda. Um, certainly, you know, historically, the primary order of business has been uh, related to legislative activity. Um, but if there are timely matters that um, the chair of the commission wants to take advantage of the, the full, you know, assembly of commissioners, um, we could certainly put that on the agenda and accommodate that. Okay. Okay. I have a question for Mr. Scott, if I may. So um, you mentioned that three teams have met. Is that it? Or is that just since our last update? Well, uh, Madam Chair, Mike Scott, for the record, that's it for the, the, the kickoff meetings for each of those teams. I think Lincoln County actually met in December after the, the oversight committee meeting. But okay. then we've, we've had some vacancies around the state. Um, we're, we're starting to get those vacancies filled. So some of those teams will start actually having their meetings. And then, um, you know, there's just a lot of things going on with the game division, um, a lot of capture work and things like that that we've been involved in. And, and it's, it's really taken the focus away from actually moving forward with some of this because there's a lot of preparation for these biologists to to come up with their presentations and um, gather information. And a lot of them are asking uh, staff specialist Cody Schroeder for information. And so it's a, it's a little bit of a capacity issue trying to gather all that information and put it together in a presentation form so that they can give those to those, each of those teams. So um, I, I think we'll, we'll start moving forward with some of those. You'll probably see a lot more and the timing of that. Um, if we, if we did say, I'm, I'm just, going to say it might be April 14th or 15th, somewhere in there where we would have an oversight committee meeting. That would probably give us a little bit more time to see some of these teams uh, get together and have presentations um, provided to them and um, then, you know, get a little bit more information. Okay. And I'm going to make a plea to the public. We have 46 attendees watching our meeting today. I know some of that's department staff, but you're all 
welcome to join a team or, or watch it participate as um, and engage with these teams in your community or, or any community throughout the state. I encourage all of you, whether you're interested in one issue or all of our issues to participate. Um, this is a really important program. We need to increase our mule deer numbers and any interest I think is um, widely accepted. So thank you. Any other questions for Mr. Scott? Commissioner McNinch. Thank you, Madam Chair, and I appreciate those uh, comments from you. And Mike, I hear your disappointment. Um, you know, you're in it for the long haul. Um, it's a good way to go. It's the right way to go. Um, it's in response to, um, to, to, you know, comments that we've made on the commission, but largely from what we've heard from uh, people in the public, um, uh, people concerned with what we are currently doing, with what we're not currently doing on all sides of the equation. So I, uh, I echo uh, Commissioner, uh, Madam Chair's um, uh, comments and thoughts that uh, um, uh, with all the comments that we've received regarding our mule deer in the state of Nevada and um, the things that we can do to improve it, uh, regardless of your interest in mule deer, I would have thought that there'd be 50 people on each one of these things too. Now we know that that's uh, realistically, there's a lot of other things going on in people's lives, but uh, um, I would certainly hope that people would get involved. Um, it's been built uh, and and developed uh, for that opportunity, and um, I don't know what else what else you can do. Moving forward. Thank you, thank you, Commissioner McNinch. I I totally agree, and um, you know, it, a lot of the things that we want to do relate to some of the questions that Commissioner Hubs had earlier about sagebrush. Um, and and uh, what um, uh, Habitat Administrator Janae spoke to, um, you know, if if we sagebrush is going to be one of the the big issues with regard to mule deer, and we want to continue improving, um, enhancing some of those those areas. And and frankly, the my opinion is that if we do good things for mule deer, we should be doing good things for all wildlife as well as uh, other species, um, other users out there. So. Um, that's that's the intent of this thing, and and I really do hope that that we can build some momentum and move forward with it. Any other questions, thoughts for Mr. Scott? Okay, we will look forward to another update. I'm very interested in this topic, <laughs> very passionate about it. So I I hope people get involved. Thank you. Okay, moving on to. Agenda item 15D, petition, Mr. Perry Rob Pierce. Is Mr. Pierce with us today? Okay, thank you. Um, special hunt season for disabled persons for possible action. Mr. Pierce has submitted a petition requesting a special hunt season be made available to disabled persons. The commission may take action to deny or accept the position and initiate rulemaking. Um, and Unfortunately, this petition lacks a part of um, one of our most important aspects of the NRS code, and that is the language of the permanent regulation to be adopted, filed, amended, or repealed, or a description of the subjects and issues involved in the permanent regulation. So if I'm missing something um, in my background material, please let me know, but according to NRS 501.195, the petition to adopt, file, amend, or repeal permanent regulation 
we're missing that language. Does anyone else have language from Mr. Pierce or can Mr. Pierce speak to that regulation that he would like to amend or have us review for adoption? This is Mr. Pierce, may I speak, Madam Yes, Chair? yes, please. Um, so I didn't know, I got a message about language and I didn't understand what you meant by that. So I, I formed a, a little word document, um, it's less than six minutes long that explains what I'm asking for. I didn't realize I had to get in and look at the NRS and all that. I'm basically just asking for a week or two before the general public gets out there to allow the disabled to hunt so that we can have a fair chance. That's, that's all. And I was going to leave the, the language up to you guys to decide. I'm not asking for anything special. I'm just asking for a fair chance. Okay. Um, my concern is that we're not following our own law and okay. we, we don't have that from you. You mentioned that you have something. I wrote up a, a six minutes or less statement. If I could read that, maybe you can get out of that. And then I was going to lead the uh, leave the language up to you, you professionals, because I'm definitely not a professional. Okay, well, let let me consult with our DAG real quickly before you get started, because okay. I'm not sure that that's enough for us to move forward. But it may very well be. So, Mr. Burkett, yeah. can you advise us, please? Yeah, my concern is that the the reg does speak to a process and that process provides that uh, some language of a potential uh, regulation be provided to the, the department. The commissions refers that um, petition to the department. The department then can review that and make a couple determinations. One would be whether there's authority for the commission to consider the petition. And then secondly, um, any recommendation they would like to make related to that. Um, without any language in the regulation, um, it's very hard for the department to make a determination there. I'm sympathetic though to Mr. Pierce's uh, concerns. Certainly, I think the department, I know uh, the department is always willing to work with anybody who's interested in um, wildlife and all the issues surrounding it, including this petition. I would suggest that perhaps Mr. Pierce could um, resubmit a petition with language, which he could work out with the department. The department could help him on language. Um, in terms of you know, what he specifically is seeking through the petition. And then we could follow the process through that way. And I, I understand, again, Mr. Pierce's uh, difficulties here. And I, I think that we don't wanna, I mean, the most important thing we want here is public participation in the process. And we certainly don't wanna hinder that, but at the same time, we want to abide by the regulation that exists. And it's very hard for this commission to consider a regulation that they have no idea of, even if he offers to provide oral testimony here. Um, there is a process, and unfortunately, I think my recommendation would be to follow that process and to ask Mr. Pierce to come back, work with the department, propose some language, and then the commission could properly consider it. So that's my recommendation. 
And I would agree with that. Uh, we had a couple of cabs reach out asking what the what the regulation would be and how it would change. And so that it hasn't been, we haven't had a chance to vet it through, through that process either. So I would um, ask you, Mr. Pierce, um, if you would resubmit that petition to us with the proposed that work with the department on regulation uh, to resubmit it. But I need to also hear from my other commissioners and this is for possible action. So we probably need to, to take it for public comment. But does anyone else have any questions or comments regarding this particular topic? Commissioner Hubs? Yes, I, I just have a comment. Um, I, I noted uh, somewhat similar issues with the petition, but overall I didn't I didn't think the petition wholly was unimportant. I think it could be very important if it was worked on. So I would encourage the petitioner to seek assistance and get it back to the state um, because I definitely think there is a potentially need for something like this. I would like to discuss this and um, uh, I don't want the petitioner to give up hope on it. It's a, it's a procedural issue, a technicality, a little ding, if you will, and it can be worked on and readmitted. And I would uh, ask the petitioner uh, to reach out for support on it, definitely. Thank you, Commissioner Hubs. Commissioner Almberg. Yes, I would just like to echo uh, Commissioner Hubbs' comments. I, I would really like to encourage him and uh, for discussion purposes to, to continue with the process. Thank you. Commissioner McNinch. Thank you, Madam Chair. The only thing that I would add um, is uh, right now, as it stands, we would be in a position to, to have to take action to accept or deny the petition. And so uh, along with those comments, I would ask, uh, and just recommend or suggest that uh, Mr. Pierce uh, rescind the petition, uh, which means that nothing goes on record. Uh, um, you know, uh, it might detract from his efforts moving forward. That's a very good point. Thank you, Commissioner McNinch. Any other comments? Mr. Pierce, would you like to rescind? Um, I don't know, would we have to take this out for public comment right now, Craig, if he rescinded? Um, I would do it anyways. Um, okay. I think it's important that the department take public comment in any item on the agenda that, that is before them. I don't know that a formal rescission, that's, that's a contract term, um, is required. Um, we, he could simply just agree to resubmit the petition with language that um, is satisfactory for the commission's review. I don't think there's any formal requirement here that he rescind it. Um, he could just simply agree to resubmit it. Okay. Mr. Pierce, do you have any further questions before we go out for public comment? I do, if I may, just for a second. I don't sure. know who to talk to. So if oh. I could uh, contact, that would be fantastic. Yes. Uh, Deputy Director Rob, would you like I to the record, I, I can be the main point of contact to work with the petitioner. This puts the department, looking at other petition processes, uh, if the department does this, it's basically a department petition at that point. It really 
puts the department in an awkward position. It, it does uh, because it would put us in charge of finding the language, updating the language. It becomes a department petition at that point. Uh, a, a general public brings forward an idea and then it's a department, it, it's, it's tough for me to explain, but it, it puts me in an uncomfortable situation. I have no trouble uh, working with petitioners to try to explain the process, but to complete the process is another item. Uh, we could work with the petitioner, go over, there are a lot of rules on the books, uh, being able to shoot from roadways, shoot from vehicles, uh, assistance in retrieval of game. There's a lot of things the department has worked on with the commission in the past to ensure that uh, persons that needing assistance in the field can get that. And we can go over all that with the petitioner also when we do that. So, so. Okay, I don't think we were asking you to write the copy, I think, or the, the regulation. I think we were just asking for maybe to provide some direction if that would be. Yeah, and we, we, will, we will work with the petitioner to get there. Okay, Mr. Burkett. Well, I, I apologize. I, I didn't. I went before Miss Director, Deputy Director Rob finished what he was going to say. I was going to offer to do it myself if he's concerned with a conflict there. Um, but it sounds like Deputy Director Rob is okay with it. I would I would just suggest that Mr. Pearson, his own words, write it down with assistance from information provided by the department. All, I, all it really requires, Mr. Pierce, is some indication of what you're seeking with respect to the regulation, the general intent of what you're trying to seek, and how you would want to implement it. Um, so again, the most important thing is to assist Mr. Pierce here. I would like to assist him and make sure he um, gets this before the commission with respect to exactly what he would like. So. Mr. Pierce, if, if you need further assistance, I'd be happy to help. Okay, thank you. And Deputy Director Rob, did you have anything to add? Yes, Madam Chair, thank you very much. I believe if Mr. Pierce gets the department to six minutes of testimony he was gonna provide, that may give us enough guidance to then provide guidance back to, to come up with a petition that we can then get to the CAVs, to the, to the commission to make sure that we're all in sync with where we need to go. Okay, thank you. Does that help Mr. Pierce? Yes, it does. Okay, thank you. Any other comments from the commission? I saw Commissioner Hubs had her hand up. Are you good? No, okay. Um, no, I, I do wanna uh, talk. If, if Mr. Pierce would obviously like to be independent, I just pulled up um, some legal services that might be able to assist you if you cannot afford to hire. <laughs> I'm sorry, I've got my house in the background. Um, counsel or somebody to review what you would like to do, but there's up and I noticed you were in Reno, Mr. Pierce. So there is um, a Washoe Legal Services and that is on Ar South Arlington Avenue. You can call them and maybe have counsel assist you. There's Nevada Legal Services on Marsh Avenue. And then another one is called Legal Services of Washoe County. And that one is on 9th Street. Sometimes they have uh, counsel that will assist you. They're nonprofits. 
if you can't afford to get counsel to help you, that's all I was just going to suggest as well. They'll review the regulations in your intent and help structure your petition for submittal. Just an independent source. Thank you, Commissioner Hubs. Okay, if there's, <coughs> excuse me, no other public or commissioner comment, we'll go out for public comment. Please raise your hand if you'd like to speak on uh, Mr. Pierce's petition. Mr. Volz? There we go. There. Yes, good morning for the record, Fred Volz. Morning. Um, I'd like to suggest a glitch here in this particular petition. It seems as though the petitioner has to submit all of the information well in advance of it being heard by the commission. So I'm not understanding why the department, whoever is reviewing this on their behalf, wouldn't get back to the petitioner and say, we're missing this, this, and this, rather than waiting for the petition to come before the commission and then have it delayed because indeed it is missing something that you need. And this has been a problem with other petitions uh, in the past as well. So it seems like process-wise, you need to make some fixes in this so that when somebody actually has the petition coming before the commission, it is complete and you can actually deliberate it on it rather than having to prolong the issue. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Voltz. Um, I understand Maggie Yu would like to speak. Hello again, this is Joseph Terry, last name T's and Tom, E-R-R-Y. I'm a resident here in Las Vegas. I do like the thought about having a disabled hunt. Um, I looked up just in our local state or, or local neighboring states. In Arizona, they do have a CHAMP license hunt, which is a challenged access mobility permit. Um, also in New Mexico, they have a disabled permit for veterans. So I do think uh, us jumping on board with something like that would be good. As you've mentioned, the language is not there as of now. I do think um, talking about that and figuring out what is disabled, getting some guidelines in there would be uh, the main deal and try to figure out how to regulate that, make sure the person is disabled, no one's taking advantage of it. But I do like the thought. I think that that would be a good thing for our state. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Terry. Anyone else wish to speak from the public about this petition? Okay, I don't see anyone. So I'll bring it back to the commission for further comment or Mr. Pierce, if he's still with us, I don't see him. Yes, Mr. Pierce. Can you please rejoin us? There you are. There, sorry, something changed. Okay. <laughs> yes, I appreciate your concern. Thank you very much. I wish I would have known about um, having to have the language because then I would have tried to reach out further. I was not advised at the beginning, but this is a new process for me. So I will do whatever is necessary to help others. And um, I just thank you all for your time. 
Well, thank you, Mr. Pierce. We hope you'll come back with us. So that's a formal uh, rescission of your petition at this time. You'll come back? I will come back, yes. Okay, thank you very much. And this is a little bit new for us too. This regulation uh, was adopted last fall, I want to say, by the uh, Legislative Commission. So it's a little bit new for us as well. Okay, well, uh, thank you all for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you. Okay, anything from the department on this or should we just keep moving forward? Uh, Madam Chair, just one uh, process piece that I wanted to speak to on, on petitions. And um, <clears throat> so years ago, the process um, that we had for petitions and the timelines in which they needed to be addressed and responded to, um, was untenable because of the infrequency of the commission meeting. So there was a, a 30 day timeline that required anybody who submitted a petition um, to have a response within 30 days. Well, clearly with only seven commission meetings a year, um, there were a lot of time windows where that response couldn't have been made and, and you know conformed with that language. So. Uh, that regulation was uh, rewritten um, and respectful of the meeting calendar of the commission. Uh, the department kind of stepped in as an intermediary to evaluate if, first of all, the, the commission had the authority uh, to address what was being requested in the petition. And then secondly, um, the department would make some uh, recommendation to the commission specific to um, that that petition request. And so um, by virtue of placement of those petitions on the agenda, that is a, a clear reflection that the department um, believes in fact that those items, this uh, petition item before you today, as well as recent petition items, have been um, items that the commission could address within their jurisdictional authorities. And then secondly, the department, uh, quite frankly, doesn't doesn't feel it's appropriate for it to be in the place of being judge, jury, and executioner, if you will, of the petition contents. And so uh, our recommendation to the commission will always be to do what you feel is most appropriate or best given the, the merits or lack thereof of the petition. So the department will follow that process, determine if the authority does exist does exist under the commission's authorities and then make the recommendation uh, for the commission to take uh, whatever action they, they feel is most appropriate. So I just wanted to address that process piece. We, we did change. We did change that uh, within the past couple of years and, and uh, we're, we're still um, getting familiar with the new process implementation of that process as well. Thank you, Madam Chair. You bet. Thank you, Director Wasley. Okay, moving on to agenda item number 16, the Nevada Department of Wildlife Project Updates, Secretary Wasley Informational. The commission has requested that the department provide regular project updates for ongoing projects and programs as appropriate based on geography and timing of meetings. These updates are intended to provide additional detail in addition to the summaries provided as part of the regular department activity report and are intended to educate the commission and public as to the department's ongoing duties and responsibilities. Thank you, Madam Chair. And as I uh, mentioned earlier today, today's uh, department project update 
is uh, is going to be an update from uh, the law enforcement division, and this was something I think that was originally requested um, by past wildlife commissioner Bill Young, um, having a, a career in, in law enforcement. He certainly took a, a, a peak of interest in in those law enforcement act activities, um, and it began what now kind of exists as an annual update. Now, there is no slow time of year. Um, but this is probably the most appropriate time of year for us to hear um, from from our law enforcement personnel because it's an opportunity to kind of uh, report on um, the past hunting seasons activities um, as far as field activities uh, we're kind of between uh, the early in the in the boating year and the ending of the, the hunting and angling year. So with that, I'm going to turn it over to law enforcement division and Chief Maynard will will kick things off. Great. Good morning again, everybody. Um, I, we have a PowerPoint, which I believe will pop up on the screen at some point. Um, and then I'll get going on introducing what happened in law enforcement in 2020. So um, it was a banner year in a lot of ways. It was some very unique circumstances. Uh, on the next slide, it shows the breakdown of our agency and where we sit right now. Um, go to the next one. Our current staffing, uh, we have one chief game warden, three game warden captains, three regional supervisor game warden lieutenants, 32 field game wardens, one investigation unit game warden lieutenant, two investigation unit game wardens, two reserve game wardens, one of which is a lieutenant, reserve lieutenant, one full-time seasonal game warden position, and currently seven vacant field level positions, ranging anywhere from two in the northern part of the state and five in the south that we are currently vacant. Um, moving on to our challenges, um, I'd like to frame this, uh, this presentation of our overall programs and our activities with the unique events that happened in 2020. Um, this was not a normal year by any means. Uh, there were several factors that encompassed law enforcement nationwide, not just uh, conservation law enforcement or boating enforcement, but law enforcement in general. Um, obviously COVID had a huge impact. It, you know, we started off with January and February saw pretty much the you know normal wildlife activities and volumes of contacts going into the year. And we had heard rumors that COVID was coming. And then in early March, mid-March, um, the kind of the sky fell in and it changed things radically. Um, initially, we were really restricted in what we could do. Um, direction from the state, the governor's office was, you know, we were trying to minimize uh, contagion spread. And uh, so we had to come up with all these programs or plans basically for safe contact with the public because obviously the, uh, the stratagems that we would normally utilize in things such as uh, you know, contacting people during uh, regulatory contacts or actual enforcement events, rescues, arrests, things like that now had to change. In the, in the framework of COVID and how that was affecting uh, what we did so that we didn't add the added risk of infection to the public or ourselves doing our day-to-day -day activities. 
So there was a big change in need for PPE, personal protective equipment. Uh, there were shortages nationwide. We had uh, adequate stocks on hand to get ourselves going. And we supplemented those over the months to follow and uh, began getting back out in the field as soon as we possibly could, which was under a two week period. We were already starting to move people out and getting back out. Thank Thankfully, in one regard, it was in a time period like right now that there is no slow time of year, but it was typically didn't have the volume of calls in a lot of arenas that we typically do. Um, so it worked out for us to build up from that point. Um, some other things that went on nationwide that were related were uh, civil unrest, which has been a trend in law enforcement that has grown since 2014 and, and incidents surrounding Ferguson and uh, the media coverage of those as well as public perceptions all led to a lot of misunderstanding about law enforcement and the roles we play. Um, and it added another level of difficulty in, in a lot of things that we do. Um, Obviously, everybody wants to uh, have their constitutional rights observed. Um, and the, the perception that the public had made it very difficult for certain interactions. There, there was an increased negative influence towards law enforcement, which obviously is a challenge and a complication when you're trying to, to talk and interact with folks. Um, so this coupled with COVID and, you know, there's a saying in law enforcement, stress has no provenance. When people have a higher stress level, it, it automatically complicates those contacts. And we did see some of that. Um, and working with the public and, and working with the, the changes that were happening socially and in, in society um, became very complex in, in the spring and going into the summer. Um, there were already some Small changes that had been made to law enforcement in the 2019 legislature, which enhanced some, some training demands that we had to meet. Um, but now we could no longer meet in person to do a lot of the training. So we had to, to transition to uh, online training. The unfortunate thing was, is that in many cases, that didn't exist for the particular disciplines that we were required to train in. And there was a little bit of a, uh, a ramp up to try and get that done. Um, so we did a lot of training in the spring um, to, to catch up with, you know, some reduced uh, activities we saw. And then as the weather started to get warmer, we started to see a, a large number of people starting to go afield because typical public venues weren't available and everybody rediscovered the outdoors. And there was a huge uptick, uh, I believe. And obviously, Deputy Director Rob can speak to the um, uptick we had in, in people wanting to get licenses and get outdoors and tags and such. Um, and we definitely saw that. Um, coupled with the events that happened over the summer, there was a special session and largely that focused around some financial issues the state was going through because there was a huge uh, financial hit the state took because of the shutdowns. And there were also uh, several very um, profound uh, legislation that was put through in the special session that affected law enforcement and changes in some of uh, the 
core things that affect our job. So this is just on top of our normal patrol and everything else we, we try and do is we had this put on top of us. And I, I, I speak with, with tremendous pride and humility of the efforts of our folks um, in rising to the challenge and the extreme professionalism they showed and the efforts they took, as well as um, the support we got from the department and a lot of the public in what we were doing, which was very nice. Um, then there was the additive effect at the end of the year when collective bargaining began, which was a new, uh, new creation from the 2019 legislature. There was a law passed, I believe it was SB 135, that gave state employees the right to uh, unionize and collectively bargain with the state for benefits. And that process was starting up um, late summer, early fall. And it, it was ramped up since then throughout the winter and we're still in that process. Um, alongside that, we had several retirements in our division um, and promotions and subsequent vacancies as the, that effect filtered down. We had new captains, we had new lieutenants, um, and we currently have overall seven vacancies throughout the state. And when you consider that we have a full-time staffing in the field of 34 officers and we're now short seven positions, that's a significant portion of over 20% vacancies. So um, it's, it's, a, it's a pretty, pretty good challenge to, to stay up to speed with your day-to-day -day activities when you're short 20% of your staff. But again, uh, very proud of the efforts that our guys have made. Um, with that, I'd like to turn it over to the, my two captains, uh, Captain Jake Kramer, who's in charge of wildlife program and he will be followed by Captain Bulls in charge of the boating program to give you more specific details on what they've been doing and what's been happening in their program. Thank you. No further ado, uh, Captain Jake Crane. Thank you, Chief Maynard. Uh, Madam Chair East and commissioners, I wanna thank you for the opportunity to speak to you today and update you on the successes of wildlife law enforcement in 2020. Um, again, for the record, I'm. Uh, Jake Kramer. I'm a game warden captain of law enforcement for wildlife. As uh, Chief Maynard stated, in 2020, we had a, a great deal of challenges for everybody, uh, including law enforcement. And I'm, I'm really proud to say that our Nevada game wardens met the challenges head on and overcame them, uh, you know, by looking at the shutdown as really an opportunity. In doing so, our wardens found ways to improve their skills and knowledge by attending trainings in various fields. The shutdowns also allowed wardens to further explore how wildlife law enforcement can better address new technologies, including a vast network of social media sites. So examples of some of the training that uh, Chief Maynard was, was uh, alluding to. Um, again, this is when the, uh, the shutdown just kind of started and uh, we had more or less stay home orders. Uh, we found ourselves, uh, again, looking for new and improved ways of, of training ourselves to deal with, uh, again, new technologies and, and areas of, of deficiencies that we, uh, we felt personally we could improve on. Um, some of those include interview and interrogation. Um, and we have lots of interview and interrogation classes and schools that we can go to. Uh, a lot of those are now online as well. Um, search and seizure laws. Uh, a lot of these are online seminars that were attended. 
Um, search and seizure laws also geared toward uh, specifically toward wildlife law enforcement. Um, and these were interesting classes because it dealt with a lot of what ifs uh, for game wardens. Um, you know, tents, how to deal with tents. Is that a residence or not? You know, temporary domiciles, um, RVs, same kind of thing. Um, open field doctrines, you know, what is the, the reasonable suspicion versus probable cause um, in open fields? Can game wardens access uh, properties that are posted? Um, all those kind of things got brought up in these classes and were taught by attorneys um, that specialized in those fields and, and proved to be invaluable uh, training for everybody. Uh, we also attended um, conflict management as well as electronic device forensics and uh, including uh, case software um, or case interface software. So this would allow, for example, when we're done with a case and it goes on to uh, the attorney general's office, not the district attorney's office for uh, possible prosecution, it would basically allow a presentation to be given um, that interfaces with like Google Maps uh, and other kinds of software that helps the, the jury or the judge be able to visually see the progress of the case, um, kind of like almost real time. It's a very good software. Um, we also uh, included um, cell phone investigation schools and classes. Um, social media training on lots of different sites. Of course, uh, always take the opportunity to take more ethics trainings and de-escalation training, which is uh, in line with current police practice. Um, our investigators also took advanced investigation technique schools, uh, warrant writing and instructor development. And, and what this is, it's basically a, uh, a class that allows our people to go be trained as more or less professional instructors. Because within house, we provide our own uh, training in the areas of firearms, defensive tactics, pepper spray and baton training, uh, taser, and of course, uh, field training. And that is a very important one because that helps retention, uh, getting people onboarded and, and trained properly. Now, with respect to uh, Commissioner McNinch, um, he had a previous statement in this, uh, in this session. Uh, we have uh, specific training also that a few of us took related to uh, psychology, which helps officers identify personality profiles on people and allows the wardens to better understand kind of what, what motivates somebody to satisfy their needs to be able to uh, you know, in terms of like poaching or something like that. And, you know, is it a showmanship thing? Is it for a private collection? Is it um, to evade? Is it the thrill of evading uh, and not getting caught? So, you know, training in psychological um, issues as well. So overall, it was a very successful shutdown for us. Um, it allowed us to uh, get a lot more equipped and, and better trained in, in those arenas. And of course that doesn't end just because the shutdown. Uh, we continue to do that. Uh, next slide, please. With um, statistics. So this is a, again, and during the shutdown, uh, our wardens continued to patrol, um, sometimes very much alone out there in the initial part of the shutdown. But we initially found a low user base uh, and 
with people out and enjoying Nevada's recreational opportunities. Um, however, that quickly changed after a couple of months of people being at home, kind of a little uh, stir crazy. And during the mid to late summer months, wardens saw a record number of people out boating, hunting, shooting, and generally out exploring in Nevada's landscapes. So here are some uh, basic statistics for uh, the past year. Uh, we issued 1,278 citations, including wildlife and boating. Now this doesn't include warnings. Um, our warnings generally, it, it depends on the officers and the regions, but I would say a, a fair assessment is a four to one ratio or uh, warnings to citations. Uh, we had uh, 539 wildlife and general law enforcement related citations. Now we had uh, an Operation Game Thief has a, uh, a line into our dispatch office. And we had new uh, software upgrades this past year, which we weren't able to capture all the calls that came in on that line due to uh, data loss. But from February to June of 2020, we, we captured 2,305 OGT calls into our dispatch office. Um, of that, it created 79 Operation Game Thief uh, induced case investigations, uh, which then resulted in 52 unlawfully killed big game reports submitted with 35 citations issued for those investigations. Overall, 160 case numbers were drawn, which were wildlife related, not boating. Uh, our office uh, approved and uh, 478 guide applications. Uh, we have a lot of, that includes sub and master guides. Uh, so there is a lot going on here at headquarters office with uh, guide processing. In addition, we had uh, five human wildlife conflicts resulting in injury. Uh, and those were uh, coyote and fox primarily. Uh, and then we also assist as, as general law enforcement officers with uh, other agencies and assist with major crime investigations um, as needed, uh, manhunts and search and rescue operations. Next slide. So just an example of casework, and this is uh, not limited by any means, uh, not limited to what we're gonna be seeing here. Uh, we have a multitude of different uh, types of investigations and casework that we do every year. Um, and, and none of that can be captured in a, in a brief presentation, but these are uh, examples. So multiple urban wildlife calls, bear interactions, uh, injured and sick deer, mountain lion depredation, uh, bobcats, uh, snakes and more. So there's a lot of urban wildlife conflict that game wardens uh, go out and help mitigate. We have multiple investigations of unlawfully killed or misidentified uh, species of wildlife trapping related investigations, uh, transfer a tag. Um, we also call that sometimes party hunting. Uh, waste of game, uh, feeding big game, and hunting accident this last year with uh, substantial injury. Next slide. Uh, continuing uh, unlawfully taken game uh, in urban areas. Uh, a lot of this has to do with such like uh, Spring Creek, uh, archery. Uh, some folks believe that archery season is, is within the Spring Creek subdivisions, the HOAs. Um, and we have some issues there. We have some problems over here in Genoa with, uh, with possibly, uh, you know, hunting or trespassing or something like that. Um, not often. Intentionally unlawfully killed uh, big game. 
So that's your typical poaching is what you would uh, call that. Licensing issues. We had some uh, decoy operations this past year involving uh, big game uh, operations. We had plainclothes fishing violation projects where our officers went out to uh, reservoirs or lakes, bodies of water and plainclothes, observed violations um, as a uh, fellow fisherman, and then uh, uh, got together with a plan, uh, uh, an officer that was uniformed and then went wrote citations for violations of over limits. We had over limits of uh, small and big game animals, of course, general trespass and shed antler collection and, and much more. Um, we also, if you look at the, uh, the picture of the, the warden in the water, um, that was an example of what I believe was the first ever uh, large scale search for evidence at the bottom of a lake bed. Um, in that particular one, uh, we searched uh, an area about 50 yards by 650 yards wide of lake bottom, uh, looking for a specific piece of evidence. Um, that equates to about 300,000 square feet using metal detectors and rakes and, and things like that. So um, always coming up with new and improved ways of, of getting the job done is what that is. Next slide. Law Enforcement Division also has a dedicated investigations unit. It's uh, staffed by one lieutenant and two investigators. What their job is, they uh, provide a service to Endow Wardens by investigating time sensitive, or I'm sorry, time intense, uh, multi-jurisdictional cases. Uh, that allows more patrol time for our field officers to uh, go out and do their jobs without being bogged down in, in those time intense, lengthy investigations. Uh, they provide a network of contacts and resources beyond that of a field warden. Um, our investigators have contacts with all state investigators from around the country and uh, other countries as well, and continuously talk and, and provide case information back and forth and have a, a pretty good network of information. Uh, they also provide advanced knowledge from unique trainings and experiences that they have. The uh, investigators this past year completed approximately 46 residency investigations. Um, things about residency investigations is they're extremely time intense and produce a very large case file uh, because there's a lot of documentation to be able to prove uh, whether or not somebody has a residence here versus uh, another state or, or what have you. Um, and, and this comes into play for application of big game tags primarily you know, trying to get uh, an advantage of, of being drawn. Most of those cases, however, end up in, um, in not being a case whatsoever, uh, either a mistaken of the you know, paperwork not being completed with other states after uh, moves, et cetera. But anyway, the, the investigation still continues in full, um, but we either prove or disprove residency violations. And like I said, the majority of those are um, exonerated However, we do have a handful every year that our investigators catch in, in actual fraud. Um, <clears throat> unlawful baiting and trail camera use for big game hunting uh, was caught this past year as well by our investigators. Uh, and unlawful intentional big game kills. And then again, we coordinate with numerous states on, on mutual wildlife cases. Uh, our investigators also um, have advanced training and warrant service and case law 
and uh, digital forensics now as well. Next slide. Our Operation Game Thief program is a nationally recognized program administered by individual states. In Nevada, part of the OGT program is administered by showcasing examples of unlawfully taken wildlife within the state and providing information to the public as how, to, how the public can help stop poaching. Uh, Endow has three regional OGT trailers, which are deployed to civic and sportsmen's events, as well as schools to help reach the public with our messaging. The OGT program is assisted by reserve game wardens and other volunteers. Reserve game wardens are commissioned officers who work on a voluntary basis for Endow. They are largely responsible for staffing the OGT events. Now, some of the things we did in, o in the OGT event program this year, uh, again, we had basically two months before the shutdown happened. So what we're gonna be looking at here was the first couple of months of the year and not the remainder. Operation Game Thief, uh, we had two special patrols with our full-time wardens. So these officers, our, our reserves go out and actually patrol as well, uh, as long as they're with a, a full-time officer. They did two OGT unit watches, which is essentially what you're looking at on the top of the screen in the first photo. Um, that's where we go out into the public somewhere and set up shop with our trailers and engage the public with conversation. Uh, we attended the Mason Ortiz Youth Camp event this year, a disabled veterans events, fishing derby events. We uh, did career days at local schools. And then Nevada in 2020 hosted the International Wildlife Crime Stoppers National Conference. Uh, it was organized by, uh, at that time, uh, Game Warden Captain Brian Eller. And that was in Lake Tahoe, Nevada. It was a very successful event. In the first couple of months that we were operating, our Game Warden Reserves logged over 4,500 miles and 522 hours in participation as volunteers during 2020. Again, just for the month of uh, January and February, part of March. That concludes my brief overview of wildlife law enforcement presentation. I'd like now to introduce Game Warden Captain Brian Bowles to explain Endow Boating Program Overview. Thank you, Captain Kramer. <clears throat> Excuse me. And thank you to the commission and Cherries for allowing time and opportunity to share some detail of our past year. 2020 certainly tested the Nevada Department of Wildlife's Recreational Boating Safety Program in a myriad of ways. It almost does not bear repeating at this point that the past year has changed us all professionally and personally with the impacts of the pandemic and we were no different. Now the strange year started normally for us in the quiet winter boating season and then locked us down just as folks were starting to think about getting their boats back out on the water. As the year progressed, we had to meet the adversity of learning how to do our job, normal jobs again in a manner that met all disease prevention protocols and best practices to keep our staff and our public as safe as possible. We were still accountable for providing safety on our waterways, however, and making sure that our mission was upheld with no loss of fidelity. Our tasks on our state waters are twofold, provide enforcement and accountability for violations of laws and regulations we are charged with upholding and guarding our citizen safety in what can be a swiftly unforgiving environment. It is my opinion that we met those charges head on and with great success this past year. So to the adversity, our response to the pandemic, we quickly realized that putting a warden on a boat in the middle of a lake by themselves was a mostly COVID safe practice. So we began authorizing normal boating patrols shortly after the initial lockdown. Our staff came up with great solutions for engaging in some limited public contact when enforcement was necessary. 
We equipped all our boats with cleaning solutions so wardens could sanitize items before and after any potential third-party co contact, bought extra ballpoint pens so that anyone needing to autograph a citation also received that pen as a one-use souvenir from the state. And of course, mandated mass wear by our wardens when within proximity of any other person, whether staff or public. It wasn't long before this became routine for our wardens. As mentioned by my colleagues, the opportunities for training, such as boat accident investigations, boat operators classes, and A-ride substance recognition trainings were available and taken advantage of. On the administrative side of things, it seemed that the public also thought that going boating again was a great option, and we saw an increase in boat registrations year over year, from just over 41,000 to almost 44,000 in 2020. We worked in coordination with our DATS Division Boat Registration Desk staff to learn how to adapt to the new environment by changing our practices to accommodate all boat desk transactions being accomplished via distance. For example, we would do boat hand inspections virtually, sign title paperwork by utilizing online certification programs, and conduct boat dealer transactions by packet drop-offs and appointments. We used our ingenuity to eventually provide full services to our public without absolutely needing them to set foot in our offices in every case. Next slide, please. Now changing tack to our enforcement efforts. One of the themes that I heard about from my fellow boating law administrators that was occurring nationwide was the public's overwhelming return to the waterways to recreate and a marked rise in careless and reckless operations. As you will hear, Nevada shared in that trend. But first, overall in the 2020 reporting period, boating citations dropped from 1,005 in 2019 to 645 in 2020, somewhat attributable to our moratorium on enforcement on any timeliness problems for boat registrations issues due to COVID. Our warnings on the water rose year over year from 1,932 to 2,132, indicating both that softer stance on registration issues and the desire for our wardens to keep good social distancing and not spend more time in close proximity with members of the public than absolutely necessary. If you drill down to the numbers for careless, reckless, and negligent vessel operations, however, you will see that national trend I mentioned borne out. In 2019, we wrote 167 citations and gave 229 warnings in this category, while in 2020, the numbers rose to 269 citations and a whopping 1,062 warnings. Thankfully, we did not see a commensurate rise in accidents resulting in death, with only three boating-related fatalities on our waterways, and only one of those where boat operation was a contributing factor. Our wardens were able, in that last case, to obtain successful resolution on charges against the boat operator at fault. While you never really can tell through statistics if your presence as a law enforcement officer stopped something bad from happening, it sure seems that our presence out there helped keep a lid on the more tragic outcomes for our citizens and visitors. Speaking of preventing tragic outcomes, this past year really provided an opportunity to shine a light on our mission of guarding the public's safety on our waterways. In the 2020 reportable period, we engaged in 87 search and rescue cases, assisting 251 vessels and those 675 persons on board those vessels, making it back to shore safely. But none quite so memorable as what happened this past Mother's Day on Lake Mead. I'd like to give you a detailed readout on one rescue in particular, which you may have heard me mention last summer, not quite in this context, as the story does keep going, as you'll hear. On May 10th, 2020, at approximately 1924 hours, game wardens Casey Humphreys and Thomas Hamblin were each piloting their separate 23-foot safe patrol vessels in the vicinity of Roadrunner Cove, Lake Mead, Nevada, on a vessel assist call with seven persons stranded on the beach due to mechanical failure of their boat. The weather at the time was reported clear with fair visibility, strong winds of 15 to 25 miles an hour, and rough lake conditions with waves reaching from a minimum of two foot 
to a maximum of six foot. The sun was due to set in about nine minutes. Warden Humphreys responded to an urgent distress call from the Lake Mead National Park Service dispatch of an overturned vessel with 12 persons in the water located in the vicinity of Swallow Bay, Lake Mead, Nevada. He and Warden Hamblin broke away from the vessel assist in Roadrunner Cove to attempt to locate the capsized vessel and persons in the water. Roadrunner Cove is immediately adjacent and to the west, Swallow Bay, both features being part of the north shore of Lake Mead's Boulder Basin between Colville Bay to the east and Las Vegas Bay to the west. The boat operator reports that he and his family and work colleagues and their families were on a church outing that, for Mother's Day at the lake and were getting ready to head back to the dock. He had previously made one trip back to Boulder Harbor and had returned to Swallow Bay to retrieve his family and others for the final trip. He states, quote, upon leaving the island, the wind began to blow so intensely that it pushed the boat towards a rock that I could not see. Later, I managed to get the boat away from the rock, but the wind got worse and the waves began to fill the boat with water. I turned on the water pump, but the water kept filling up the boat because of the waves, so I decided to return to the island, but the boat began to sink and roll. As the boat capsized, my colleague's granddaughter got trapped under the boat, end quote. The boat was later found to have sustained a 24-inch by 3-inch gash on the bow adjacent to the keel, well below the waterline, and further witnesses report the heavy wave action swamping the stern simultaneously. By 1928 hours, just four minutes later, Humphreys and Hamlin had arrived on scene, finding eight persons in the water, seven of those with life jackets on, and four standing on a reef approximately 40 yards from shore, all of those wearing life jackets. Humphreys began immediately pulling those in the water onto his vessel, and he and Hamblin both requested more Endow and National Park Service assets to respond to the scene. The capsized vessel, later determined to be a 20-foot 1987 Sea Swirl bow rider, had turned turtle and was down by stern, presenting only the keel of the bow with the bow eye attachment above the water. At the boat operator, who was one of the individuals who had made it to the reef that they grounded on, had a hold of the bow via the, the attached line. Surrounding this reef was approximately 30-foot depth of water in all directions. Working through a language barrier, as most of the distressed persons were native Spanish speakers, Hamblin and Humphreys ascertained that there was one person, a three-year-old female, unaccounted for. It was feared by the distressed persons that the child was trapped under the capsized vessel. Warden Humphreys, with the assistance of the victim's grandfather, who was the individual in the water without a life jacket, took the vessel into stern tow utilizing the bow eye attachment in an attempt to tow the capsized vessel to the nearby shoreline to effect a rescue attempt on the presumably trapped child. Warden Humphreys took the grandfather on board and stationed him at the aft tow bit with a knife. Immediately, Humphreys noticed that the capsized vessel began to sink rapidly, pulling the stern of his patrol vessel downwards, and he gave the grandfather the order to cut away the tow, which he did. The vessel ceased sinking and bobbed back to its previous attitude in the water. Warden Hamblin then took the sea swirl into, sea tow, into stern tow, utilizing the bow eye attachment, and was able to safely transit the vessel to the shoreline at approximately 1934 hours. He and Humphreys, along with some of the rescued persons and others on the shoreline, began to attempt to roll the boat over to attempt a rescue of the trapped child. The shoreline in this area is shallow for approximately five feet, then abruptly drops away to 30 foot and lower depths. The inverted bow of the sea swirl was just over that lip, and the wardens attempted to push one gunwale into the ground to get purchased to then flip the vessel, but the wave action and size of the sea swirl prevented these attempts. Hamblin then re-embarked his vessel to retrieve the boat operator and three other persons from the rock. Between 1934 and approximately 1940 hours, NPS personnel and game warden Sean Flynn arrived in their separate patrol vessels to assist. Attempts were made to flip the vessel both by hand with the new rescuers present and by attaching a line to Flynn's vessel and attempting to right the vessel to no success. At this point, Flynn made the decision to swim under the bow 
and enter the capsized sea swirl to search for the missing girl. From his report, quote, I decided that I needed to clear the capsized vessel by going under it. I removed all my patrol gear and grabbed a flashlight. Some family members, the NPS Rangers, Warden Humphreys and Hamblin, held the bow of the capsized vessel as I went under it. I followed the center line of the capsized vessel down to the rear compartment, which was underwater and at a depth where I could no longer stand. I used the flashlight to light up the water and saw a child's arm. I grabbed the child's arm with my right hand and it moved. The capsized vessel was being pushed up and down by the waves and I caught a glimpse of the child's face. Her eyes were open and she let out a short scream. I grabbed her life jacket with my left hand and had to dunk the child under the water and pull her out from behind the rear compartment. Once clear of the rear compartment, I wrapped my arms around her and made my way to the bow of the capsized vessel. An NPS ranger was at the front and grabbed me, pulling me out from underneath the capsized vessel. Once clear, I handed a child to the NPS officer and she was reunited with her family, end quote. At 1955 hours, Flynn radioed endowed dispatch that the child is recovered and being assessed by NPS medical personnel. She was eventually released by medical at the scene with no injuries. Her family's written statements differ with the reported duration of her submerged ordeal ranging from one hour to 35 minutes in those statements. Dispatch records make clear, however, that from the time of the first Endow-related incident call at 1924-59 hours to the call referencing the child's recovery at 1955-57 hours, 30 minutes and 58 seconds had elapsed. Game wardens Brittany Ryder, Christopher Walther, and James Mortimer got underway from Boulder Harbor to provide assistance to the scene. Between these wardens, Hamblin, Humphreys, Flynn, and NPS Rangers, all distressed persons from the capsized sea swirl event and the seven earlier stranded in Roadrunner Cove were safely transported back to Boulder Harbor, Lake Mead, Nevada. Next slide, please. In response to this amazing act of public service and heroism on the part of our wardens, we began working with the United States Coast Guard to provide some recognition of these exemplary acts to safeguard human life on our waterways. As a result, it has just been confirmed that the United States Coast Guard will be awarding Tom, Warden Thomas Hamblin and Warden Casey Humphreys with the USCG Public Service Award, and will also be awarding Warden Sean Flynn with the USCG Silver Lifesaving Medal. Speaking as a former Coast Guard veteran myself, I cannot fully stress enough how amazing the award of a lifesaving medal is. It can only be awarded by order of the Commandant of the Coast Guard, can be awarded to any person, not just military members and is awarded in one of two categories, gold or silver. Established in 1874 as one of the first metal-type commendations in the nation, it has only been awarded in gold or silver a little more than 2,000 times in our nation's history. By way of comparison, the Medal of Honor, the nation's highest and rarest combat military honor, established originally as a valorous conduct medal by President Lincoln during the Civil War, has been awarded over 3,500 times. Warden Flynn will be part of an elite society joining the illustrious ranks of some of the nation's recognized lifesavers, such as General George Patton and Admiral Chester Nimitz as a fellow recipient. I think we should all feel proud and humbled that we have such brave men and women in Endow's LE division, like Hamblin, Humphreys, and Flynn, and that they're all ready at a moment's notice to rush to the aid of those of us who are in peril on our state's beautiful waterways. Now I'd like to turn back to Chief Maynard for final comments. Thank you, Captain Bowles, Captain Kramer, for those presentations. Um, needless to say, 2020 was a growth opportunity for the law enforcement division and the department as a whole. We saw tremendous performance uh, by our game wardens in truly challenging circumstances, and you've seen just a, a slice of that. Um, we deeply appreciate the support we've received 
from the department and the public. The director's office has been there with us every step of the way, working hand in hand to enhance our ability to do our jobs under some very, very trying circumstances. And I cannot understate how much that has meant to us as a division um, to have that. Without that, we can't do our job. And they came through um, in diamonds all the way down the line. Uh, it's, it's very humbling. This is, ironically, this is 2020 is my first year as chief. Uh, it, it was definitely a growth opportunity for me. So I, I just wanna say again, how proud I am of our division and our department through this, this challenging time. And uh, thank you very much for giving us the opportunity to, to showcase uh, some of the work we do. Thank you, Chief Maynard, and that brought me to tears. <laughs> um, I appreciate the service and the effort because I think that could have been a really horrible situation. So I would like to express my appreciation for that, for the service uh, of those crew members. Um, and while I gather it together, does anyone else have comments or questions for Chief Maynard or his team? Mr. Perini? <laughs> Yes, I was lucky enough to work with the Department of Wildlife dealing on Lake Tahoe, especially, you know, 45 years being there and watching a lot of help that was actually done. And I'll tell you what, you can't understand how much work you've done. It's amazing. And how many people you survive. Those people that got in the water and some other times, I'll tell you what, it was very difficult. And sometimes, even though you shouldn't go somewhere in those places with big waves, but you went anyway because you love that job. And not only with the boat though, but also the people up in the mountains, great jobs, they do it for us. I know the sheriff's departments, the police department, they love you guys to come and help us and vice versa. You do a great job. I'm very, very pleased to be able to see that again. And thank you for a great job. Thank you. Thank you, Commissioner Prini. Commissioner Rogers. Uh, yes, just a, a couple of uh, quick things, Chief Maynard and, and uh, Captains Kramer and Bowles. Uh, that was a great uh, presentation today. I appreciate your, your service and, uh, and the great update. I did have one question for uh, Captain uh, Kramer, and that is on, on the, uh, the citations and Operation Game Thief calls uh, that you reported on. And forgive me if I missed it, but just curious how much of a, a significant increase some of those numbers were on the citations and Operation Game Thief calls uh, year over year. Uh, thank you, Commissioner Rogers. Uh, uh, through, you, through you, Chairman East, uh, I'll answer the question. Um, without having the actual numbers in front of me, uh, I, I can tell you, having looked at them quite extensively over the last couple of months, the OGT numbers as far as uh, uh, unlawfully killed wildlife reports are fairly consistent year after year. Um, this was this was no great increase. I believe it was within two or three um, of the of the previous years. And of course, there's spikes that go up and down. But uh, overall, it, it's it's rather in line. Um, overall, um, as far as citations, uh, citations are are down. Um, I don't have the the totals from the previous years, but I can, uh, it, it'll take a little time. I can get that to you though. 
Anything else, Commissioner Rogers? Okay, anyone else? Commissioner Alberg. Yeah, I'd just like to extend uh, my gratitude for, for you guys' uh, performances, your, the jobs that you guys do. It's very difficult under good circumstances, much more or less this, this pandemic. It, it, it's, it's tough times and you guys have a very difficult job and appreciate all you guys' services. Thank you, sir. I had some similar questions and um, uh, that Commissioner Rogers asked, so I will forego those. Is the guide application number, is that up um, from previous years, Captain Kramer? Uh, yes, uh, Chairman East, uh, the guide applications are increasing. Um, it's not significant. Um, if I, I don't have the exact totals again, I'm, I apologize. Um, I would say it's probably up around within a plus of 50 over the previous years. Okay. Okay. All right. Anyone else? Okay. Thank you very much, Chief Maynard, for that report. I, I heard somewhere along the line the last couple of years that um, you all out in the field, especially uh, for those that are on the on the field side, not the boating side, you know, you pretty much know that someone's got some sort of weapon when you approach them. And um, I have great respect for for all of you, everybody <laughs> in law enforcement, because I know how difficult that can be. And and you obviously are very passionate about your jobs to to be able to do that. And um, I I thank you for my side uh, for your service. So anyone else? Director Wasley, do you have anything to add? Uh, <clears throat> not much, thank you, Madam Chair. I just wanna uh, on the record express my appreciation and, and gratitude for our law enforcement division and, and the risk that they take um, day in and day out and appreciate uh, their willingness to share kind of a, a overview of their efforts over the last year. So thank you for that opportunity, Madam Chair, and thank you for uh, that presentation, uh, law enforcement. Yep. So it's noon and our next um, agenda item, I think is gonna go fairly long. So I think what we'll do is take a, a lunch break now, if that's okay with everybody and we'll come back. Um, 1245, does that work for everyone? I know Director Wasley has a commitment. He won't be back joining us until one o'clock. Would you prefer that we wait until one o'clock, Director Wasley? Not at all. I appreciate okay. uh, that, but you guys go right ahead. I'll be able to monitor uh, through okay. Zoom on my phone. I will be available and uh, hopefully I'll, I'll join shortly after you reconvene. Okay, so we'll come back at 1245. Thank you.